welcome back to the Brothers Book Club podcast. You're joining us for a special episode. This is a best ofs or highlights episode. And for today, at Amanda's request, a lowlights episode, which we have not really done before. This is going to be a special new entry. These episodes are essentially our time to break away from the normal book reviews cadence and get into kind of a retrospective. It's just been my way to look back at what we've read and reflect on it and pull out some special things, things that maybe listeners who haven't listened to everything, which to be honest, when I envisioned this pod, I didn't envision that. I figured people would kind of skip around and pick things they thought were intriguing or whatever. These episodes are the best way to do that. So if you found us, this is a very natural jumping in place, actually. Today, Amanda and I will be covering episodes 41 through 60 or books 41 through 60 in the Penguin Little Black Classics collection. That is our current book review endeavor. It is a collection of 20 pieces of world literature, translated, not updated, and uh, we've been rating, reviewing them. Joining me, as I've already spoiled a couple of times, is Amanda. Hey, Amanda. Hello. (laughs) Thanks for being here. So far, the best ofs I've done, one through 20, was cut clips. So I literally went back and just took old footage out and recut it, sampled it. That's like the intro tone piece to the show in my mind. And then 21 through 40, I had to make up Um, Some new things that was my idea was like to re-review them or revisit them just because I had done most of those solo. So there was no way I was going to go back and cut clips of me talking alone and then put them on. That just sounded like the worst. (laughs) That's like the worst available idea for how to do a best ofs or a highlight episode. So I did not do that. I opted out of that and just did a different thing. And I'm happy to be doing it this way. I think this might be the winning format. I guess we'll find out. I hope so. (laughs) <laughs> I don't are you often um but to spoil this for the listener now the format because again we're going to play with the format a little bit today yeah are you a big end of year list person and that you read them not that you make them uh no no not really see it's a huge part of my media consumption life it, it's really? like yeah because I like to keep up to date on movies TV and books and even like video games too I, all the media I consume I read criticism of that's another thing I stay up with like I feel like all those hobbies for me I try and keep up with the critical thought about them or whatever you know websites or follow certain authors or writers or podcast people anyway so the end of the year is a time I love because it's like it lets me fill in the gaps so it's like mm. if I trust this critic and they always do their end of year list I can think oh I watched five of those but I hadn't heard of those five or something like that so I I don't know it's become a big I'd say in the last decade it's become a big part of my media end of year consumption which I don't know is that bad I don't think so I, I think that's a, a great way of kind of seeing what is uh, going on in the culture for now and, mm-hmm. and just kind of getting a, a better sense of what's going on out there with media. And there are things that you might not have been exposed to, right? It's a good way to yeah, be yeah. exposed to things that you wouldn't normally maybe watch or read or, or anything like that. So I think that's a I think great so. way. Yeah. Well, and, it, and yeah, like I said, it's it's to me how I view the Academy Awards, which is a pretty distinct for most people, I think. Mm-hmm. To me, it's just I, I want to see the nominees because I want the snapshot for my own reference to again, just to so I can think, oh, I saw those two. What are those three I haven't heard of that kind of a I just want the general 
I just want a broad idea list. I just want an idea basket. <laughs> and then I want to reach into that basket and just pluck stuff that people recommend. I don't, it's the winning that doesn't, I don't care about yeah. terribly much. And I know people get really obsessive about that part of it. Mm-hmm. And that's why today we might not be ranking them in perhaps the way people would expect in terms of like one through five or best, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Because that's when the hair splitting begins, when some of the more dishonest criticism I think cr- can creep in. Yeah. I think when you, when you just pluck the ones you really loved and thought were critically great and then you don't have to do the fighting ranking kind of a thing Mm -hmm. some of that stuff can become arbitrary anyway hair splitting i guess would be the term yeah okay so uh i think i've set this up pretty thoroughly but what we are doing today is we are ranking and so our goal is to pick the best five and that's where we're going to begin so we'll start the podcast here by trying to decide of these 20 that we read or at least i know i read do you know how many of the 20 you did read? The only ones that I didn't read, I believe, were like four or five of them. Okay. That's not too bad. And for the most part, we did overlap. And so we read, yeah, in that, I guess what I meant by did overlap is that I didn't pick very many that you have not experienced. Right. Yeah. There's There were only, I just went back really quickly. There are only four of them that mm-hmm. I did not read with you. Fantastic. And I'm not terribly worried. We discuss this kind of off air, though our lists are secret to each other. I Mm -hmm. suppose we should reveal the logistics of how we did this. We compiled our top five lists separate from one another. We pulled some thoughts and quotes together to justify each and we'll see what we can whittle down. Our goal first off is to create a best of five. And so we are going to have some light maybe banter debate about them. I'm sure we'll agree on a few. Actually, I'm almost certain we will. Yeah. <laughs> and so we'll, you know, we'll say our piece about them. I, I will state that with these best ofs, we're kind of trying to assume, I suppose I should have told you this before we recorded, but hey, it's live, <laughs> folk. We're live. Not really, but uh, you know, we're keeping this in. Um, no, our goal is to essentially assume the listener has never listened to any of these episodes. Got it. So it's kind of a sales pitch, kind of a vibe. We have quotes pulled that we can revisit or reiterate to give sense of the style. Mm-hmm. Again, I have a couple points on each I'd like to say. I'm sure you do as well. And so that's our goal up front to do the best of five. I think at the end, we will be able to re-rank them according to your preference or my preference. Mm -hmm. And we'll discuss that when we get there. But that's our first goal is to come together and pick the best five, not even put them in order. Again, we'll do that maybe at the end as a personal thing, but we just want five. After that is done, at Amanda's insistence, we are going to dunk (laughs) on and trash the bottom five is the other thing we will do, uh, which I'll be honest with you, actually it was harder to make I'll, to be, yeah, to, to reveal that and give that a little bit of a sneak peek. There were a couple at the very bottom that were obvious to me, but from there, I really did have to go back and reread. I reread way more for the bottom than for the top. Mm-hmm. I will say that. Um, so maybe that's that my literary analysis was just kind of self-flagellation or something. Who knows? It was, but it, some of them were incredibly obvious yeah um yeah tolstoy you're going down brother oh, it's for happening. sure <laughs> it, it's gonna happen that's <laughs> yeah i'm sorry i don't want to i don't want to you know say criticisms against the dead but oh man what a terrible read i'm anyway, going to so, guess that half of your bottom five list is russian <laughs> i i did try and check my biases so we'll see i don't want to spoil anything again our list um are secret from each other at the moment All right, so that is the prelude. That's what this episode will be. If you've stuck with us this far, hopefully you're in for the picks then. Why don't we begin with the top five? As I said, that's kind of the purpose of this episode. That's why we're here is to give you interesting things to read and suggestions to read. The format here will be just a little back and forth. Um, Amanda, I will let you suggest the first for the top five. Sure. 
feel free to say your piece on it or set it up however you want. Again, feel free to ask me questions or toss it around, whatever. And then I'll kind of jump in with my thoughts. There's a good chance we might agree. And so throw one out there, Amanda. Let's see what we think. Yeah. Um, So the first one, I think that you actually will have put it on your list as well, perhaps as Mm -hmm. your number one, uh, The Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. It was my number one. Yeah. Yeah. It was my number one as well. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So what I loved about her was um, that she was insightful. She was concise. She was not cliched. And we even went on to read her um, utopian novel, mm-hmm. um, which we had some mixed feelings about. But Yeah, much more mixed there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's true. Yeah. But um, th- th- she, in that um, compilation that we read, there were actually two stories, the yellow wallpaper and then the, the one about um, the water. Um, and there was a third too, the oh, rocking right. chair. That's right. Yes. And, um, see, didn't even review. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, no, that's true. Even though like, I think yellow wallpaper, you and I were already familiar with the other two stories that I had mm-hmm. not read before were still really well written, beautifully written and very insightful as well. And I just think that, uh, she is, she's just such a wonderful writer who doesn't just belay her point. Yes. Yeah. I think concision and having what feels like to me as a reader, a a crystal clear vision is something you and I have both started to latch onto in the reviews, which I don't know, isn't that just good storytelling? I I don't think (laughs) we're saying anything too radical or, uh, you know, we're not illuminating some grand point here, but that's, I think the yellow wallpaper was my number one. I think I actually wrote down, I did want to create some amity and concord right away. Mm -hmm. And I knew that would be a good point for you and I to agree on, but it didn't, I think putting anything else first here would have been dishonest anyway. So I don't even feel bad about putting it as my number one, like it was the number one pick. I think, again, it's a good way for you and I just to agree. But also, to me, I guess the points I wrote down, I wanted to reiterate about this, was the potency of the narrative voice. Mm -hmm. She has her narrators, whether first person or third, because I think Yellow Wallpaper's first, but the other ones aren't. Right. Um, Regardless, the narrative voice is so clear and intense, but not it's not going to belabor it or it's not going to like cudgel you with the intensity of it. It's, it's not a ground post style where you're like, it's dripping with some kind of mood or tone or voice. Right. It's really a bit more subtle. Uh, I did pull one quote that I'll read though. Again, I, the quotes are largely for, if we really need to dig in deep, I don't think we need to here. We both love this. Yeah. And, um, but I did want to read the quote with the creeping in it where she says, mm. it is so pleasant to be out in this great room and creep around as I please. I don't want to go outside. I won't, even if Jenny asks me to, for outside, you have to creep on the ground and everything is green instead of yellow. And it's still, that was a quote I read in the review. It's still such an incredible quote. I don't know. I, I love the the way the, the, the verb creep has really no meaning there right. or it's really left up to the reader to imagine it in a very off-putting way. It's an alienating way to describe just your actions and it and then there's the contrast with the colors and so it has layers and depth there if you want to analyze that you know there's certain archetypes or symbols to those colors you could break down at any rate so it's a rich text but yeah just the playfulness with the language there is incredible Mm -hmm. i thought it was probably the most complete well we'll get into that actually in a second probably but i thought it was maybe the most complete tone piece or voice that we encountered Mm mm-hmm any final thoughts before we, I mean, that one's a shoe in then for the top five. Yep. Any final thoughts on the yellow wallpaper? Nope. I think that's good for me. Wow. Okay. I was expecting this to go over an hour, man. We're cruising already. <laughs> Nothing but love here. It's good. This will be easy. <laughs> 
I was I was saying before the show that I'd probably have to edit this one more heavily. There'd be breaks. There'd be more breaks. There'd be more disagreement. Whatever. Apparently not. This is gonna be easy. Nice. Should I throw one out there then? Yeah, do um, it. So I'm gonna do. The way I envision this going is I'm also now going to throw out another one that I think you will have chosen. Mm-hmm. So my my play early is just let's get the agreements right out there uh, yeah. right away. Yeah. So this was my number five, though, again, the ultimately the rankings don't matter. I did it just because that's my habit. But ultimately, they're all going in the same pot. Um, so my number five was Lord Arthur Seville's crime. Nice. Which I'll be honest snuck on there i really didn't think i had actually made and, and planned this out before he read that and the old man of the moon so i, I w- wasn't sure if this one would make it in it did knock off a pick that i know would have been contentious but i won't say what it is just in case it comes up later it's one that i might even think you might throw in the dislikes pile so let's see, or the bottom mm-hmm. five so anyway i won't say anything else but to get back to it this is the short story kind of a yeah, like a longer short story by Oscar Wilde. A couple points I'll, I'll bring up. Um, did you pick this one also? Of should ask? course, it was my number three. Yep. Okay, fantastic. <laughs> so we can easily mark that one down very comfortably. <laughs> I, w- you know, I won't read a quote from this one, but I will just say, though I could because I pulled a couple. It's, they're so fun to read. Mm-hmm. I think it is perhaps on a word for word, sentence by sentence measurement, the best or most sharp writing in the entire set here, 41 through 20. I almost got worn down by it at some point. Again, his humor and his wit is on such display that it can, it did kind of bog me down, but I think it leaves you more in awe and appreciation than feeling like somebody was kind of, I don't know, it didn't feel too braggadocious or anything. Mm -hmm. It didn't feel cocky. It felt fun. And most of the times it feels like you're in on the illusion of the reference. It's nothing too intense. It doesn't leave you feeling out. Like a reference to Hamlet isn't the craziest thing in the world that you can pretty easily know who Hamlet is. Or I remember he mentioned Scotland Yard at some point. It's like, oh yeah, I've heard that. That's the police. And so anyway, there's enough of it in here to have depth and such fun, but also it's really not off-putting. How did you, how do you feel about it? I already just love Oscar Wilde. So um, of course he made it on this list for me. Um, but yeah, 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 this particular story, it's it was an interesting story plot wise right and mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. there were so many twists and turns and it's just when you describe oscar wilde and his writing like the word clever is just it's stamped all mm-hmm. over it he's he's very very witty and very funny and he takes things that um might be like highbrow ideas like Hamlet and, and other things like that. And he just kind of makes it approachable for you. And he wrote for the masses, right? He was, he was uh, lampooning the upper classes and kind of feeding that to the middle classes and the lower classes. So he's, he purposefully kind of takes things down so that you can, you can actually appreciate it and everything that he writes. It's not cliched. You would, think that you know especially from like a victorian era that there would be more examples of you know with the illusions being more cliched and some of the images being cliched but he twists them so well that it's it's refreshing and very light yeah for that time period victorian era which can be i think for again people who don't read often yeah can be such a bugaboo yeah. i think it's associated rightly so with density and 
long-windedness and just kind of, I don't even pretentiousness. Mm -hmm. But no, this is so readable, so funny. I think, too, I think back on this one or I was thinking back on it. The ending I I still really loved for its weird ambiguity and it, it kind of its abruptness, too. Yeah. It's, the end of the story just settles in a very odd way that and we try not to spoil on the reviews and we're not going to, I'm not going to spoil it here either as this is just a recommendation show. But I think it has such a strange ending that really added a twist to the, I don't know, to the entire proceeding, I, I suppose. And I love that about it too. The quotes I pulled were jokes about, for example, a bomb being in a nursery mm-hmm. and somebody, somebody who has quote, he was a man of action rather than thought he had the rarest of things, common sense mm-hmm. as he's thinking about, you know, murdering people. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. that's the most common sense plan of all. Yeah. And so, yeah, just brief references there, but I agree. I thought it was, witty and not too dense and just so enjoyable any final thoughts on lord arthur seville's crime yeah just um just that wild in general like his his stuff is just so quotable it's very easy to oh yeah um to just kind of get something from there because he's just so clever like i've got my refrigerator side has like all these quotes from oscar wilde just because they're so funny and insightful so yeah Yeah. read it yeah (laughs) Two for two so far. Yeah. This might be done in under half an hour. This might be our <laughs> fastest episode ever. Woo-hoo. No, I actually, I did believe pretty firmly those two would be guarantees for you yeah. and I, or for you and me, I guess. Can't, you know, can't yeah. do the grammar incorrectly now, Travis. <laughs> you're into, you're in too deep now. So anyway, uh, correction for the pod. Um, Amanda, well, let's keep going back and forth though. Yeah. I think this might be the first opportunity for real contention. So throw out another recommendation here. Let's see. Um, my number two choice um, was actually The Reckoning by Edith Wharton. Okay, I do not have this. So ah. finally, finally a sticking point. Interesting. Um, so the reason that I chose this one um, is that she is a master at setting and tone and atmosphere. The way that she just kind of, um, like Gilman, and even in the... Um, the episode that we did on the reckoning, mm-hmm. <clears throat> I, I compared her writing to Gilman's writing in that they're both very concise. You don't see a whole lot of like super long sentences. Um, although in the reckoning itself, she does use a lot of like uh, more difficult vocabulary words, but that was because of the narrator I feel. Um, okay. But I think that was a, a particular stylistic choice. Whereas in the next story that she wrote, which was Mrs. Mancy's view, right? Um, yeah. In that yeah. one, you, you'll you notice that the vocabulary was not the same. And that's because of the different narration, uh, narrator there. But, um, or the, the- I wonder if I would, I wonder if I did notice that though. Um, and I do wonder too, if a, if a, I don't know, someone less keen or less paying less attention would notice the differences. Mm. I'm, that's funny. I might have, this might be the first time where we'll have to put in some real edits because I might have to go crack it open again. <laughs> here's what I, here's what I remember though. I wonder what your thoughts are on this. Yeah. The, this is the story with the marriage, right? Or the right. marriage that falls apart, the open mm-hmm. marriage. Yep. I, it has that same problem stories of that era do that really wilds didn't have as much a slow opening, I felt. I don't know. I just remember at the beginning feeling like there's that conversation they have right away at the dinner party. So at least you, you have a hint of the conflict. Mm-hmm. But I feel like it detours after that. Do you feel like that is that a problem in those stories? Or is that, I guess, when you're immersed in that kind of language, it might not matter as much. Yeah, well, with 
with that particular opening, um, I didn't feel like it was uh, that disjointed. I think that it was uh, different. Yeah. You you do get some like flashbacks and stuff like that um, within the storyline, but the opening didn't really bother me too much. But that might, like you said, might be the fact that I I have read a lot of old timey books like yeah. that like Jane Austen is like yeah. one of my favorite authors so like I'm kind of used to like I guess like slower openings but yeah so maybe right. maybe I'm not the person to to ask about that <laughs> and I I distinctly remember this as well the story of the view I actually thought was such a perfect short story yeah like it it does what a short story should do which is not overextend on plot and really pick really pick a pinpoint precise moment in a person's life and just really drill down on it. it. It's didn't, it didn't try and belabor. It's not like an, it should fit the form, right? It doesn't have to be a novel with 10 plot twists or whatever. Right. And I remember thinking that that was pretty, it was a pretty fantastic compact little thing. I'm pretty sure I rated that a two at the moment. Yeah. I'm not sure what in you the rated moment. it, but I do remember you enjoying, um, Mrs. Man- Manstey's view. Um, yeah, yeah. And there were some things about The Reckoning that you didn't enjoy, but I really enjoyed both of them because they both, my whole reason for it was that it was also concise and it the, the storyline was very uh, to the point and wasn't something that was like just moralistic and like poking you with like morals and stuff like that. But also sure. yeah. my favorite thing about Wharton's writings with these two short stories was just how beautifully she creates uh, the setting and how the setting is a reflection of the characters. And it's just really well done and just beautiful. I feel like. Yeah. And I, um, we'll see what sticking points we arrive at. I would wonder if I had to crack that one back open, if it would be that, because I'm thinking to like the Oscar Wilde passage with the moon and the river and all that. I wonder if if Wharton's just overstayed again. I wonder mm-hmm. if it was just a density for me that because I yeah I don't remember the settings in any for any particular reason. But for now, I think okay, we set that up well. That one would not. I'll, I'll say this as a small preview. That's not my bottom five or anything. Okay. I think that I'd be somewhat content with that staying. Um, I suppose we'll see as we keep throwing them out. Okay, that one's not a guarantee, but it's on there. I have a post-it note going, so yeah. informal uh, note keeping here. I also have um, a note. Go ahead. Notebook going. Yeah. So <laughs> look at us, diligent note takers. I should have. Yeah, I just grabbed a post-it like a second ago, and I realized we're probably gonna have to keep track of what's in and what's out. <laughs> so that one right now, I'd say, is new, in the neutral zone. No, no agreement, no disagreement for me. Let me put out another one because I I have one on here. I guess we already talked about it off air, so I may as well jump into it because I did pick one you hadn't read, so mm-hmm. I'm not sure how this will go. But it's Anthem for Doomed Youth, which is the World War One poetry collection by an author whose name I forgot. <laughs> uh, Wilfred Owen. Wilfred Owen. Don't know anything about the man, but he wrote some really tonally tight and consistent World War One poetry. Oddly enough, I rank this as my number two below the yellow wallpaper. Mm. And I think it was a couple of things, really. Firstly, I rated it a two in in the episode. It it was an outright two. But the reason for that was strongly context-based and current events-based. It's such bleak shit that (laughs) just reading it in in our pandemic times of 2020, 
it just doesn't make sense for many pe- people. I, people don't want to lean into the vibe. You know, people don't want to address and people don't want to catastrophe compare either, which is quite reasonable and probably the same thing. Right. So it's like when you're in, when you have issues happening that are profound and global in scale, let's say, yeah, it's not like most people want to reach back to the past and think when else has the world fallen apart or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of stand by the score, but I think if I had to pick out Things that are concise, his poems rarely go over a page, which I know you and I both love that concision if it's if it's possible. Right. And to me, it is it's the tonal consistency and the collection as a whole. You would think you could boil it down to just like he's pretty nihilistic and it's and like this war was meaningless death and that's what it, he's about. And that's probably true. It's quite grim. Within the poems, though, I just found so many different topics covered and there's such a variety to it. There's things about you know the the how death is a stalker of a kind how war can be quite boring is an important idea that comes up and how there's just there's this dead air all the time and you know you spend all day waiting for something and nothing happens so it's this kind of like wasted tension almost and yeah there it, i think the the language is quite rich i have some quotes pulled if you'd like them um and i know you'd said before the pod that you'd actually encountered his poetry before mm-hmm. so my i think my final summary of why to include it in the top 5 would be the accomplishment and consistency. It is remarkably consistent. I don't think I disliked any of the poems. There were some that maybe I felt very neutrally about, but it is a it is a bleak tapestry and it's extremely coherent. I think that's why I admired it so much. The um I very quickly I have actually a uh, his entire collection um yeah, in, right. in book form because of a, a class that I took actually. Um, okay. Yeah. Back in my undergrad studies, and so I've read some of his poetry before, and I remember being impressed with his poetry, um, but being not necessarily wanting to read it again just because it was so bleak. Right. Um, but I kept the book, so that tells you that mm-hmm. you know I enjoyed it enough, and I've actually like marked up some of the the poems. But one of the poems that you had mentioned, which was "Asleep," was one that I had read before, and it's marked up and everything like that. And I just quickly looked over it, and what I, I, I the first thing that struck me really is just the the imagery that he creates. Yeah, that, yeah, and his um and the way that he creates it is very uniquely done, and I it's just really graphic um and just for poetry it's not something that i would have expected necessarily and and i like it i think it's good i think too i pulled this quote from i don't know which poem i should have written down the titles and i didn't so my bad on that one but i did pull a quote and i think this shows a good amount of the imagery and kind of it's like what oscar wilde hits that sweet spot between pretension and accessibility and it says, for after spring had blossomed in early Greece and summer blazed her glory out with Rome and autumn softly fell a harvest home, a slow grand age and rich with all increase. But now for us, wild winter and the need of sowings for new spring and blood for seed. Mm-hmm. Quite a bleak ending. I, I like the turn, of course, and such a concise final line. I think each line in that way is, is sort of a nice little, just a little tidy little box. And at the end is such a you know, disgusting, unnatural and natural image, kind of a kind of a juxtaposition, I suppose. They're a bit of contrast, you could say. And yeah, I mean, there's references to civilizations, but he's not saying anything too radical. Like, hey, these civilizations developed key things, and this is apparently our civilization's current contribution to the world, which is 
we've entered a time of conflict and unknown war, unknowable, you know, levels of death and destruction. And that's kind of the, we are caught in the winter of the world. We missed out on these other ages. Now, as a historian or whatever, I'm not a historian, but if from a historian's point of view, it's sure an oversimplification, but the images, the way the seasons plan, you know, this is rhetorical work. This is, that's, that's artwork happening, not history per se. Right. And so that's, you know, it's the point of view of a person who feels disillusioned that they were born into the wrong era, you know, mm-hmm. they're just born at the wrong time, which is a, I'm sure throughout history, kind of this omnipresent theme. And so anyway, I think, yeah, that language strikes the balance. It's, it's bleak without being brutal all the time, though some of it's quite brutal. Yeah. And so I think it, it has a balance in it like that. And again, none of these are, are joyful things. I remember in the review, my brother tried to pluck, that was the thing he pointed out. He's like, well, in every poem, there's there's like some joyful imagery, there's some enjoyment or something positive, but they all get twisted. I mean, right. none of them end well. They, they all end with something either horrible or just plainly bad happening. Yeah, that's war. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's a great, it's certainly after World War One. that's war with um, without the cultural uh, honorifics to put behind it or titles or other, you know, right. strange, you know, fight for your Lord or whatever, you know, without those kind of, I don't know, false institutions holding it up, it becomes a transactional massacre, just mess, yeah. Thanks, modernity, for another treat. <laughs> <laughs> the Gatling gun or, you know, the, mm-hmm. the tank, you know, what a great, what a great uh, enjoyment for us all. Let's put that in the neutral zone too, then. I'm not sure if you, well, do you feel strong enough to throw it in the five for sure? Or should we bump it to the neutral, like the reckoning? Uh, I still prefer the reckoning to it. Okay. <laughs> Thinking about them in the comparative like that is actually a fine way to do it. Yeah. yeah. You can think of it that way. I mean, we still have three slots, so we could pick them both in the end, I guess. We'll see what, what yeah. else gets tossed out there. Um, why don't you go ahead then with your next recommendation? Uh, this one, uh, I feel like you probably didn't choose, um, but this is my number four choice, um, which is Henry James, The Figure in the Carpet. I don't know if you remember that story, but it was the... I do, yeah. I do. The obsessive one yeah. with the author. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the reason that I, I chose it is because I just, what I liked about it was that it w- it seemed to be kind of poking fun at the reader, especially if the reader is uh, someone who's probably an English major and <laughs> tends to look yes, for right. deeper meaning um, within a text. So I really enjoyed that. And some of the imagery and the way that he um, describes characters, especially um, uh, when he, the, the quote that I pulled for the, the episode uh, on this mm-hmm. where he's um, using, he's playing with like the physical pain versus like the emotional pain. Um, that kind of imagery I thought yeah. was just really well done. And I, I found it because I went into it knowing that it was going to be something that was more uh, playful that it didn't bother me as much uh, as far as like the beginning. I know that for you, the beginning was really slow and you were like, what the hell am I even reading? (laughs) Really? Yeah. That this one is going to be reckoning problems amplified. I guess what I would say though. So in my mind, I'm comparing it to the reckoning. I would probably take this over that. I I admire the weirdness that it committed to. And the back half I thought was, I was quite enjoying because as soon as you realize that the narrator is like, has a slight screw loose and is probably not to be admired, you know, in his weird obsessiveness and his like, 
there were just early interactions with him and the author where it, I guess it, the satire of it, or it might not even be satire, but the comedy of it, the absurdity of it wasn't quite clear to me. And I think the language veils that a bit. I don't, I don't think that stuff is perfectly displayed at the beginning. It kind of just reads like a stuffy guy trying to, you know, gain admiration or whatever. Mm-hmm. I feel like that it could have been harsher on him maybe in the beginning. So I, yeah, there's kind of 10 pages of just dead air for me, mm-hmm. though their dialogue was kind of fun between him and the author at the beginning. I remember that. But yeah, I think once once it clicked into place with my brain that it was a comedy of sorts, It's I don't think it's laugh a minute. It's not like Oscar Wilde's writing anyway. Right. Um, it's a lot more it is, and it's, it's Yeah, and it's high concept, which I think I did appreciate by the end. And certainly the conclusion, talk about, a, I think, a much clearer conclusion, right, than the Oscar Wilde one. Yeah. Because he ultimately, well, I guess we shouldn't say, but <laughs> I, it has a much clearer end that aligns with what had been building, I suppose. Mm-hmm. That there's the, there's a tease throughout the whole the whole thing. And as it turns out, it ends with the tease. You know, it's just kind of like it builds <laughs> it builds to a quite a logical place. Yeah. So I admire that about it. Uh, would I take it over Anthem? I would take it over the reckoning. How about that? I don't know about over <laughs> Anthem. I just have to think about it more. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't. I I just don't think that the beginning can be so muddled and then have it fit with something like Anthem, where I again maybe this is picking it something too obvious, but I don't think you can come out of any of those poems unclear. I feel like someone could read this and come out of it confused, mm-hmm. though maybe not by the end. You know, I think I think by then it's pretty obvious what the what work had been done. Right. I suppose though, didn't it say on the cover or didn't it say somewhere that this is um, a kind of a, a literary scholar's puzzler? Haven't people put a lot of thought into what this was or what it meant? I'm not sure. I feel like Penguin I, mentioned. I printed that. mine off, so. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think on the back of the Penguin cover, it says the, the, a story that has puzzled historians or like literary academics for years. Yeah. And so there's a lot of, probably because they're wondering if he meant to be the author, if he meant to be the narrator, you know, there's yeah. a lot of- Which we discussed in that, a, yeah. Mm-hmm, because it's a story about writing and about authors that just begs and invites a lot of questions, obviously. Yeah. Which, How do you which feel is about, what I found so yeah. interesting about it. <laughs> Yeah, if I care, well, and that's the thing, though. Think of it this way, right? As a recommendation, imagine your listener has never heard of Henry James. Right. Would those questions exist in the same way? I mean, I feel like stories are made about this about movies. You know, film directors love to make movies about making movies. You know, so Mm -hmm. it's not it's not a type of frame narrative, or it's not a it's not a narrative framing. I guess I should have said that is foreign to just an everyday, I don't know, story enjoyer, media consumer. But I do wonder if the Henry Jamesness of it all would throw people off. Mm. Then again, I mean, it's not like it's going to be less, less dour of a read than the Anthem poems. Yeah. Would you take it over the figure in the carpet? I forgot about your numbering or sorry, the reckoning. Sorry. Um, no, my reckoning is number two and figure in the carpet is okay. number four. Okay, so you're high on the reckoning then. Interesting. Okay, mm-hmm. well, we'll keep them all in the neutral zone. Um, <laughs> unless, do you I, do you feel super strong about eliminating one of those three? We can have it out. I, it's almost pointless to do that before all of them have been said, but yeah. do you, do you, are your feelings extremely strong at the moment? Nope. Um, I, I like Owen's poetry too, so it's kind of, okay. it's going to be interesting, I think, when we try to hash okay. it out. I think, yeah, I, my, I do feel strongly now that I think back, I would take the figure in the carpet over the reckoning for sure. But we'll, I don't think we're at that point anyway. Yeah. Let's just keep forging ahead. Is it my turn then to it throw is. one out there? 
Okay, now we're in the, because I have two left. How many do you have left? One. One? Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. We're in a decent place then. Let me throw out another one of mine, and I'm going to actually flip the last two I've ranked. So I have my three and four left, so kind of my middle picks. Okay. And I'm going to throw out one. I'm actually going to swap it to the three spot instead of the four. It is Antigone. I don't know if you, I doubt you chose that one. I did not. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah, this is an intriguing one. I will say to its credit, Right away, something we've already been that I hit uh, against for the reckoning, or maybe both figure in the carpet, actually, especially it, it you cannot be confused in the first couple acts of this play, right. like it or in the first opening lines. I should have even said, like the first back and forth dialogue, like it is not a story that will confuse you. The dramatic situation of it and the tension at play will be immediately clear. So at least it has it has clarity at the going for it. I think. I'll say a couple of points on it, to it then. It, it's the most heightened of any of the stories we read, which I think in a drama is kind of the point anyway. I mean, you can't really pick, be subtle on stage or you can, but not in ancient Greece anyway. And it brings that ancient Greekness with it. It brings all the traits and tropes of ancient Greece along with it. I think your description on the pod of soap opera like was an apt one. I think that's probably the right way to put it mm-hmm. to a modern, I don't know, listener, reader, whatever. Unlike a modern soap opera, though, it has, and this is what I brought up in the review and what I'll say again, it's the diversity and overlapping nature of the themes, which it doesn't hide any of them, but it overlaps them enough to where that's the thing that draws out the intrigue for me. And that's where the intersection becomes the interest. So it's kind of like if I were to ask you, for example, what does the play say about governance, right? Like how could you write that answer without also saying something about feminism? Because the most staunchly pro, you know, is she anti-government or is she just pro, you know, individuality and like family love? There you go. You can't untangle those ideas from family either or particularly honor. She brings that up a lot too. Creon's character, you know, you could write him off as like a misogynist, but then at the end, perhaps not. Perhaps he was just a family man and he was impassioned or something. He was willful. You can't really untangle willfulness from foolishness. And I think, it presents all these themes in ways that are pretty clear, which, you know, either to its credit or not there. But I think that the it's the entanglement that, that is the interest. I think the other thing to point out here, and we covered this briefly on the episode, but never in detail. The translation I had was updated. It was very yeah. new. It was from the <laughs> 80s or 90s or something. And you read a Victorian era translation, right? Yeah, or something sure. like that. Something old as hail. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that is, that cannot be understated. If this one is going to get in to the top five, it will be because of the book I read, not because of the book you read. Yeah. And so I think the drama of it all and the dialogue pops a lot. Um, a quote I could pull from this one was the, the back and forth between the son and the, and the father, Creon, when they say, the whole city of Thebes denies it to a man, and Thebes about to tell me how to rule. Now you see who's talking like a child. Am I to rule this land for others or myself? It's no city at all owned by one man alone. And this is him and his son going back and forth. Mm-hmm. And then he says, what? This is the king city. That's the law. What a splendid king you'd make of a desert island, you and you alone. And that's his son. You know, he's challenging his authority as the king. It's the king city and king of an island. And I think, I don't know, even even as I reread that, there's some interesting things about leadership again and i don't think it's particularly veiled and again i I don't think a greek drama was meant to be particularly veiled like those are pretty obvious questions about governance rule leadership rulership all that stuff um but i think it's to its credit that it keeps the drama high while those questions are flying about um what are your what are your thoughts on antigone and again i i think it all has to be 
there's a real translation issue at play here. I'll say that. Yeah, there there was. Um, but I mean, that kind of language, it's annoying, but you know, I can look past that. The and yeah. I did enjoy that it was very fast paced. It's not like it dragged anywhere. But true. What really kind of just the for me was kind of what also bothered me about um, Tolstoy, which is that it's just being preached at the entire time, right? Like actually preached at because it's all about like being, um, being pious and, and following what the gods have set out for you to do and stuff like that. It's like the gods versus your own governance and, and city governance and state governance and all this other stuff. Right. So mm-hmm. I felt like I was being preached at a lot of the time, which is the purpose I know of, um, the the Greek tragedies, but also I was just like, uh, okay, I get it, right? And it there were some parts where it was like well written. Even I got that through my translation. But there are also parts like with the chorus where <clears throat> yeah. there were just like constant references to like places and um, history and some of the the lesser known gods and stuff. Like if if you're not familiar with that culture and and the the belief systems of that time is going to be kind of like you're muddling your way through that. Um, and my copy had some footnotes, but not all footnotes. And I don't even think your copy had any footnotes, right? So it didn't. But that's the thing is my translation did not require it. Uh, granted, we and we covered this on the review. Uh, uh, an addendum we should probably stop saying at this point. People know that the <laughs> the reviews of all of these are out there anyway. Right. I, I feel like I keep saying that, but anyway. So <laughs> no, and I th- I thought the chorus was it wasn't the most intriguing part because they're mostly there to chime in and summarize things that are happening. Maybe give a little you know cultural context at times. But I I didn't find their interjections that unreadable. They they definitely mentioned the gods though Olympus Zeus. I just think you can get by with those couple of names. And I, I also think when you read the quotes that you pulled from the chorus, again, in your translation, so much less readable. Here's a quick quote from the chorus that I pulled where they're just talking about Creon, you know, making mistakes or ignoring the, 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 was it like a, not a soothsayer, the person he consulted with? Uh, the Oracle. Yeah. Like an Oracle. And it just says, and now as in ancient times, I see the sorrows of the, this house, the living heirs of an old ancestral kings, piling on the sorrows of the dead, and one generation cannot free the next. Some god will bring them crashing down. The race finds no release. And now the light, the hopes springing up from the late last root in the house of Oedipus, the hopes cut down in turn by the long bloody knife swung by the gods of death, by a senseless word, by fury at the heart of Zeus. And I... I, I don't know. I mean, there's nothing too dense about that to read to me. And I don't, and I, you know, again, it, it is clear. I, I, there's no denying it. This will be, maybe this will be the sticking point between this and some of the other picks, because I think it does have clarity though. Put it through this framework. And I still think you'd come out with a pretty complex text. Like it ends in a, you know, it's a tragedy. It ends in a pretty obvious way. Yeah. And Creon has been pretty clearly punished by the end, but I still think in the debates and in the back and forths, there would be enough richness to for like a study, you know, or like a, put it up against the essay test. Like, could I write an essay about this or would I expect all the essays to be the same? I definitely would not. I think, again, there's enough entanglement to complicate it. Though, yeah, the ending is, I don't know, it's foretold. It's a tragedy. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an oracle thing. But yeah, yeah one of the, so I, I also have a quote here um, from the chorus where it mm-hmm. kind of showcases 
the the lesser known things that I was just kind of like, oh man, like thank goodness I have some footnotes. Yes, but, right, um, right. So it says, and by the twofold main of rocks, Cyanian, there lies the Bosporian strand and the lone Thracian plain of Salmedesis, where is Ares' borderland, who saw the stab of pain dealt on the Phineid pair at that fierce dame's command, blinding the orbits of their blasted sight, smitten without spear to smite, by a spindle's point made bare and by a bloody hand. Right. I mean, what what do we got there? We got Thra- Thracian, <laughs> at least three names. What were the three names? Thracian, Salmodesius, Cyanian, Bosporian, and Phineid. <laughs> right. And it's, and it's obviously a reference to some kind of well-known either story about Ares or locations, or I can't remember, like it's, or some kind of historical event that's tied into, you know, Ares stuff. But like, Without the footnotes in front of me, I, I have no idea. And it just kind of like maybe I, yeah. plays over. Like uh, I, We should have. Maybe this will be our first edit out point. I would love to see what that is in my version. I've, I've been flipping through looking for – I've just been trying to look through because I found another course quote I really love where they're debating with Antigone about – like how did how her death will be not the same as her mother's death mm-hmm. or or Niobe's death who was a who was a goddess and they're debating you know she but she was a god born of gods and we are only mortals born to die yeah and so there, I think that their debates with the name once you get over the name the debates become their own intriguing part or something yeah I don't know maybe I'll have to try and find that quote and see how it's translated I don't remember anything nearly that crazy four four or five names adjective forms you know it's just wild <laughs> yeah it was um it was the chorus parts that where they're not actually speaking to the character but it's like the in between the acts you're right yeah, yeah yeah just kind of the setup in transition right that's that's where all of the it was just like the lore dump and it's like whoa <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. extremely intense no question yeah not unlike the first 10 pages of the figure in the carpet. <laughs> uh, okay, let's. Well, I won't do the deep dive quite yet because we're not at the we're not at the revealed stage. Um, why don't you throw out your fifth and final pick? Yeah, so my number five pick was actually Goblin Market by Christina Rossetti. Okay, yeah. Um, Talk on it. Yeah, and I know that you enjoyed specifically her poem goblin market and i think it's great that actually we both chose some some poetry for our top five lists actually yeah for sure nice um good job penguin with that um yeah yeah. (laughs) well and uh, i mean i don't know we're pretty easy marks Uh, not a hard spell (laughs) it's true Um, yeah but with um what i enjoyed about uh goblin market is she's for Victorian women's writing, she is not my first choice. Um, and I mentioned that on mm-hmm. the episode. Um, my first choice is actually um, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, um, whose husband, Robert Browning, was also a poet during that time. But Christina Rossetti, I think, had some um, really beautiful imagery that was um, described in ways that were uh, not cliched. And she had yeah, some, yeah. the, the collection uh, that Penguin put together had a smattering of different themes. Um, but I mean, the, the biggest theme for a lot of her poems being um, about 
religion specifically because she was super religious, but you know, and that kind of was like, whatever, some of the poems, I just kind of meh, whatever. But there were like four poems that I actually really, really enjoyed. And they were shorter poems. Although the ones that I really enjoyed were actually the longer poems that she wrote. Um, And it's, one of my favorite poems that she wrote was uh, that you didn't really care for, but was the the playful one about um, the Queen of Hearts. The card one? Yeah, the card yeah, the one. Card. Yeah. I, I remember that. That was yeah. really playful. It's it's a great collection of different tones and different levels of intensity. Um, so compared to like Wilfred Owen, you you have that it's always going to be depressing. Um, but with hers, yeah, yeah. it was like a smattering of different. Um, tones and things like that and she also you know discusses depression and stuff like that and it's just i think a a really beautifully written um and tonally interesting collection yes i think yeah this is this is will be an intriguing one because i reckon our arguments will be poem against poem or whatever because we do only have two poetry ones recommended then yeah I thought Goblin Market was incredible and the rest of it was a complete letdown comparatively. Like it came in so hot and I thought that poem was pretty amazing. If not, a, I, you know, it could, I think what I'll come back to then is just, I don't need a poem to be 10 pages. Now, granted, she only had two really long ones in there mm-hmm. and one was Goblin Market, which I enjoyed. Yeah. But I think it's the concision of Owen's stuff that, that strikes me the most is just, this is what a poem could be for a reader or reader or listener out there who just, who needs a quick 15 minute dose or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think it, I like Owen's balance more in that it, it is thoughtful and so much more readable. You, you'll take notice uh, listeners, for example, that Amanda's cho- choices all come from a very specific time period of writing. <laughs> yes. Also, are they all British? Were they all British? Henry James um, is kind of mixed, right? Uh, Gilman is American. Wharton oh, is Gilman, American. And Henry James is American, although I think he decided he's to a, yeah. become he's British. Like an yeah. Yeah. He's, a, he's an odd case for sure. Who is the other American other than Gilman? Wharton. Edith Wharton. Oh, yeah, Edith Wharton. Okay. She's from New York. Right. Yeah, but I think we'll see what the five end up becoming. Man, Goblin Market, I think, is my least favorite of the ones you've thrown out, though. Really? I I think so, because of the... If it were Goblin Market, the poem, then I would be okay with it over a couple others. But the the, the more dense long one, sure, the nature one... That had I had at least a couple stanza rereads in there of just unpacking things and not and it losing a had not having a flow. I mean, it wasn't a narrative as much, or it kind of was a narrative, but it it didn't have the clear character work of Goblin Market for me to actually like kind of walk through that narrative mm-hmm. with, which really helped in that poem. That was a highs and lows episode for me. I remember that distinctly. That just yeah. Goblin Market had me on a real high, and then because of its eeriness and then the rest of it, I, I, I kind of admire the tone back and forth, but I think if consistency is a benchmark for us, I, the Owen stuff is just in unimpe- unimpeachably uh, consistent, I guess. And maybe even I feel that way about the quality. I guess I can't really say. Well, you make a good point about consistency because yeah, Wilfred Owen is consistent. And one of the um, points that I made in, in the episode about Rossetti was that sometimes her tone inside the poem changes. And I used one of the poems where it's like, it starts off in one voice and then it turns into a thee, thou, thy voice. Yeah. Like in, yeah. in the last 
stanza and it could have just been that. cut off. So there is, you know, she's not perfect. Obviously she was my number five, right? <laughs> so, yeah. But, of um, course. but yeah, I was thinking more of the poems that I actually enjoyed versus the poems that I was kind of yeah. meh. Okay. She's in the neutral zone. Final, my final pick then, which I want to just throw out there to get all of them in the, out, on the open. And then we can finally whittle down three more. I chose, and I'm bumping this to four at the last minute when I was just thinking about it, but it's the Socrates defense by Plato. Mm. That is my, that is my number four that we don't have any nonfiction on here that I can, that I notice. And even Socrates defense is debatably. So it's definitely philosophy, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, I'll leave to the scholars to debate that. That's like an endless point of debate or whatever. I think it was a surprise three for me because the reading of the things I picked of these five, it's I think the most dense or it was the least enjoyable just word to word read. Mm -hmm. But the way I reacted to it, I think justified a three at the moment. I still stand by it and I would stand by putting it in here. It has two things going for it, I think. One is the density and kind of blatant nature of the rhetorical strategies on display. I still find that fascinating, even the ones that don't work, even the ones that I found more absurd than ever. I kind of had forgotten that Socrates gets credited for that stuff in a for a reason and that Aristotle and Plato and the other Greeks who kind of knew him, wrote about him, thought about him. Like that stuff is deployed just so obviously and it, it feels very fresh for 2020 or it feels very potent and relevant because these things are still taught. They're still on display. So in that sense, I thought found the reputation deserved right. and I, it didn't, it doesn't go full courtroom drama as a 2020 like TV watcher would expect, but having that scenario, having him draw out those interlocutors, even though again, it was way more one-sided than I remember. It's, it's really just him talking and using, you know, rhetorical questions to trap people. Yeah. But <laughs> I, even that was fascinating, kind of funny, but I think it, it made the philosophy readable. I still think as a, as a sort of philosophy starter kit, it's a quite effective piece of work because yeah. it, it, it's that other thing that kind of Antigone does, I think well, where it's just, if you're used to having one idea, well, here's 15 and they're kind of locked up with each other a little bit and you can't, it's not like you're just going to get at one thing alone without picking at another. And there's, there's sort of a layered nature to it that I think is worth. And again, isn't, isn't even that subtle. A lot of his points are, I mean, he's trying to defend himself in court. So a lot of it's quite clear what he's trying to say, but the strategy of it, the rhetoric of it, um, I thought was as intriguing as ever. And kind of as a document of just my own personal life, I threw it in there too, because I, my reaction to it in college I, was quite different as far as I remember. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts or remembrances on the Socrates defense? Uh, so I gave it a, a two. I remember in the, yeah, yeah. It, in the episode and the, I thought that I actually compared it in my simile to uh, philosophy light. And it, I think that it is a great introduction right, into right. philosophy. And, and of course, um, there are um, this um, the Socratic method of teaching and all that stuff. Um, so I think that it it was an interesting read, and I did have to put it down sometimes just because it is right, right. so dense. Um, but compared to other philosophical writings, I think that it is a great way, like you said, it's a great entry into philosophy and getting a taste of of what that might be like for you um, before getting into some of the deeper stuff like Foucault. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but it is nonfiction. Um, mm -hmm. And there were, 
I crave rhetoric and I love analysis. So going into it, I wasn't really expecting there to be, since it's supposed to be just him, like, you know, essentially like defending his life. Um, I wasn't expecting a whole bunch of rhetoric, but I was surprised. I was pleasantly surprised that there were some like um, different allusions and different um, extended metaphors and stuff that he plays with, especially with horses, which we, we found also with Antigone. <laughs> it's like, what's with the yeah, horses? Yeah, the Greeks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They love the horses. They love horse metaphors. There's a really important one in the Republic too, that involves horses. Yeah, as there well. you go. Yeah. Plato. And uh, <laughs> so I, I, I liked it enough to give it a two. Um, and I, but I'm just also not generally a fan of a whole lot of nonfiction. Um, mm-hmm. Right. Unless it's like for something that I, I personally want to uh, learn about. So. Yeah. I, between. Would a person learn much about the lives of ancient Greeks from this? Not terribly so. Right. I mean, there's not he he only goes into the specifics of jobs and what a citizen is or what what kind of careers are available. And so there's snippets. I think that wouldn't satiate a person's curiosity that much, but it's there. It's a thing you could come away from the text understanding. I well, you could gain new knowledge in that sense, I guess. Yeah, and and the the parts where he's like um kind of like trapping uh, the main guy who was uh, brought the the accusations against him, like he had a uh, um, a questioning of him, and he, the way that he kind of like traps him in in the in the logical reasoning of his arguments and stuff, I I, I thought yeah. that was entertaining. Like I actually did find parts of this very entertaining. I will say for this. Yeah, and that's when when he's doing the trapping. That is the thing I thought was hilarious because we consider. And, you know, in teaching, we consider the Socratic method to be this eye-opening, you know, all students come together and it's like the shared knowledge pool. But for him, it's just a way to trick someone yeah. or, you know, or to trap them, really. And, you know, that's how logic works. That's how logical premises sometimes work is you find yourself trapped in something you didn't expect or maybe don't even believe. But it's one way to tease out an idea or to tease out some thinking. Yeah. Let's take stock of where we're at then. We've covered everything. We have all five out in the air. We've opened we've opened the air, so to speak, and we, we're put them, putting them out. But at this point, we have to whittle it down. I'll, let me make my first play, just broadly speaking, not really going after any of them. Think, uh, Look at the two that we agreed on, right? Mm-hmm. I, to me, the thing that jumps out, and granted, this is, I think, your proclivities versus mine, which... In terms of picking one, that maybe we'll end up at a moot point, but we picked two very readable things. Yeah. Like I could actually imagine handing those to people. And I think yours have veered towards not, and mine have veered towards readable, though not exclusively because there's nothing readable about philosophy and the doomed, stu- the anthem for doomed youth is readable, but, but really grim. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I just wonder, like if we were to, for example, if we were to pick all three of yours in, like that to me is a pretty clear line because those have a difficulty of syntax that I just can't recommend all of those. I don't think right. that would be, I think that would be my hang up at the moment, especially compared to the two that we are, we feel great about recommending. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you feel like any of them clearly deserve to be cut? Cause uh, we should talk probably those through first. For like from my, my, no, no, any of them, any any of them. them. That's just a thing I know when I'm looking at the two, because I'm trying to think of like, okay, we have two that we, we see eye to eye on. What do they have in common? Mm -hmm. 
the, uh, the readability and kind of tightness of it all is linguistically or uh, even syntactically is kind of what's jumping out. I don't know if you, do you see anything in common between those two other than that? Um, I would say the, the overall, like, um, maybe so with yellow wallpaper, it's, and with even Lord Arthur Seville's crime, right? It's a commentary on society during that time period, right? The yellow wallpaper is, is a feminist read. Lord Arthur Seville's crime is, okay. you know, yeah. uh, lampooning the, the upper classes, but they're not necessarily like being overly preachy and like just kind of digging it in there either it's it's more subtle they have than room that. for interpretation right so yeah they have room for interpretation yeah there's a clear you can like when you read it you know uh like the purpose in in writing for them but it's not something that is just like constantly like just lumping over your head yeah yeah that's fair and i wonder I wonder, so I'll look at one like The Figure in the Carpet, mm-hmm. which I guess, you know, has been a scholarly, a perplex, a perplexing object for scholars. I wonder, does it have a deep theme deeper than, you know, obsession can only lead you astray? I mean, it. I think it has language that is certainly evocative and deeper than that, but in a thematic level... Like I, I put that against like Antigone, for example, or whatever. And I, I think of it as in... What would my what would a theme statement coming out of this be? I I wonder if either would have more than the other, and I wonder if the figure in the carpet would even have more than one. I mean, the ending is pretty clear in that one, for example. Right. But it's not preachy though. The the narrative and the construction of it is subtle, and again, it's comedic, humorous. But I think it it lacks the preachiness of Antigone. But in Antigone, everyone's preaching over each other, so you can't help but wonder what is actually being preached. Mm-hmm. I guess that's where the chorus kind of kicks in sometimes. Right. And it's like, well, the chorus clears it up for you. Right. Well, with the the, you, the yeah. figure in the carpet, I think that the ambivalence there is is purposeful and kind of is meant to... Yeah, but that's what I mean, yeah. though. Wouldn't, wouldn't the, could a person come out of that thinking anything else? Like it the way the narrator is treated by the end, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, this was a this was a pointless quest, and that's the point. Mm-hmm. The point is the pointlessness of the quest, or whatever. I mean, I, I suppose you know this is where we'd have to get into have to crack open the volume again, or whatever, to truly answer that. But thinking back, I, I wonder, and that's yeah, I, I agree that you chose generally more dense things, and and like we said with Goblin Market, not just more dense but varied, I suppose. Yeah. Cowboy Market, the other poems are just not enjoyable to read, I guess, is my sticking point. They didn't, for poetry, it is the, it is on the high end of this will be, this will challenge you just in the keep up with my words way, not in the, I have ideas and imagery that is playful way. It's like literally try and get these words strung together, modern reader, you know, 2020 reader. I think that the two poetry choices that we we have here between Rossetti and Owens. I think that Owens is one that I would probably um, recommend to people who don't read poetry on a regular basis and not English majors. So on a more like on a scale of like readability, I think that Owens is definitely more readable. And, And then I guess to follow up, does it sacrifice in that readability is any depth really sacrificed? Again, I, I don't think I don't think you could look at his poems and say, 
you know, there's there's a certain scale of theme or a scale of ideas that are all pretty narrow on the like nihilism end, you know. Mm-hmm. But I think the scale exists. I don't think it's. I wouldn't call them one note. I would call them consistent. I guess. Right. And I wonder. I don't think it sacrifices anything in how readable it is. Whereas Goblin Market, I think, would quite literally sacrifice it for many readers, if not most. It's like th- the way this was constructed means that we you will be profoundly confused at some moments and some stanzas. For sure, yeah. Not it, not in that name poem, though. I actually think Goblin Market was just so readable. That That's the other thing that uh, just flipped the switch in the back half mm-hmm. of that collection. Mm-hmm. I think of all these, I would feel the most comfortable cutting Goblin Market for sure. Yeah. And putting, Would you rather cut Antigone or Sac- Socrates' defense? I guess that might be an arbitrary comparison. N- I don't not at know. all. That was the comparison I was making in my mind while we were talking about Socrates' defense. Yeah, they're they're so different. Yeah. Well, they are different um, in a lot of ways, but they're still kind of uh, meant to... Well, with Socrates' defense, not necessarily moralizing, although still kind of like talking about... I think, yeah, he gets clear points across. Yeah. Yeah. He he gets a clear point of view he wants to convey. Yeah. So I think that between the two, even though I don't necessarily enjoy nonfiction, I would choose Socrates' defense over Antigone. Just because, although there were points about Antigone that I enjoyed, um, the the preachiness of it just really, really got to me. And then the, the obscure references in the chorus, I was just like, yeah. What even? But with Socrates' defense, yeah, there were parts where I had to like put it down, but that was just so that I could think about what he was saying and and not because of yeah. boredom. What about this in Antigone? This will be a defense I can briefly mount. Again, I'm looking at the ones we've already accepted as in. Did you not find it as witty as Arthur Seville? I mean, the humor is it, there's really not much humor, so it's not that kind of wit. But the characters' rejoinders to each other were often wit-based or pun-based. And again, maybe that's just the translation. I think back to the quote I even pulled earlier with the, like, the father and the... like They are d- taking clear barbs at each other that kind of do require a bit of a pause or interpretation, or at least they're quick, you know, they're kind of quick quips, I guess to say. Mm-hmm. So I, in, on that count, I guess I did find it when I was reading it. Like the character dialogue is very snappy, I felt. And that could just be a result of translation i guess i did um and i actually pulled during that episode i pulled a couple of quotes too uh between specifically the father and the son uh crayon and the son but yeah i think that they're i think that it is well written and thoughtful but in general especially with the the dialogue i think that's really well done but i just was not so is it? Would you say that it's as kind of witty or sharp, but it's it is the thematic heavy-handedness that? Because Lord Arthur Seville's, I think, it, yeah, I mean it. I think it it gets going in a clear message kind of direction or something, but the ending is, I think, a good ambiguity. I don't know, twist or something. Right. Yeah. Is that? Would you say that's the difference? Yeah. We've and we've covered that in pods before. Yeah, and and I think that yes, the the characters in Antigone are are pretty like the the. The dialogue is witty and stuff, but it's also marred by with with Lord Arthur Seville's crime. It's just like wit, 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 wit. wit. Everything is like punctual and like has a, a particular purpose. But in Antigone, the chorus just totally trips that up for me. Yeah, they do interject a lot, yeah. and they do provide. I mean, yeah, and they had a clear purpose at the time, but 
that purpose is narratively perhaps uninteresting to some people. Yeah. I think that's fair. I feel like we should for sure cut Goblin Market. Yep. I guess. I'm okay with that. And I would put in Owen's poetry over Goblin Market for sure. I wonder, I, I do hesitate just thinking as of the, again, broader purpose of this. Mm-hmm. Recommending any play is never an easy ask. I think that's always, it's always something you think, well, I'd rather just see it performed. You know, give me an interpretation. Give me the actors. Give me the, give me the stage drama of it or whatever. Right. I don't know how much that holds true for Greek plays, which were just entirely different constructions than, you know, they're, they're structurally have, they're pretty rigid and they have forms and techniques that are pretty foreign to us now. Man, I'd hate to see Antigone go, but I kind of get it. Um, I say we cut that in Goblin Market for now then, I suppose. All right. Do you feel strongly that Owen's poetry would make it in then? I think so. Um, I okay. would, I would yeah. definitely, like, just rereading some of the, the lines that I had highlighted in, in my youth. <laughs> sure, <laughs> I sure. I think that he is, uh, he's got some great imagery and just, um, yeah, I, I liked it, so. How about this then? Let's take a look at, because we have, at this point, there's three left, technically, right? Unless I'm missing one. There's the reckoning, the figure in the carpet, and Socrates defense. Mm-hmm. Did I miss one? No. Uh, and Owen's okay. poetry, that's it, yeah. Well, I, is Owen's poetry in then? Do you think it is? I think it is. I'm 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 cool with that. I felt, yeah. I'm, well, I mean, I chose it, so obviously, but I wasn't sure how if you had felt like you came around to that level. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, I think it would clearly make it. Okay. So of those three left, how about this question then? Again, I'm trying to poke at maybe your proclivities versus mine. <laughs> you said Socrates' defense cause you know it's got good pause moments, or there's it's dense in the ideas. You had to pause. W- would you find it on a in a readability level to be harder than the other two? I mean, I I would still find the other two to be more challenging, just in terms of what kind of what kind of density is this author expecting me to, to wade through mm-hmm. to, you know, I think of, um, maybe I'll name the scale after, you know, my mom who is probably what the most avid reader I know, but she finds my, um, kind of selections in literature to be, usually she'll say things like that's too literary or that's too, like, I don't want to read something that, that, you know, like get to the point. I don't want to read an author's ponderances and, and their like rhetorical playfulness. And as they just flit around, you know, I, I think she likes things that are and it's it, not to say she doesn't read long novels. She certainly does. And, you know, like literary things that come out every year. So she's got a wide taste. But I, I think in her, in my mind, she's on the scale of like, make make it so this was made for a person to enjoy who currently reads kind of a vibe. Mm-hmm. And so I think she finds the literariness of some of my favorites to be just in, not inaccessible, but like inaccessible enough to wonder why would I take my time on this? That's the long, very long-winded setup to say, uh, of those three, where would you scale them on that kind of a scale? So, Socrates' defense, I think, is uh, obviously the most straightforward, I think. so. I thought so, too. Like you said, it's a density of ideas, right? Right. I think it's the way he speaks and the situation, I think, gives it real clarity. Like, just having that one setup of, like, okay, he's on trial is enough to propel it, I guess, is my thinking. And I found it so readable. Yeah. And that is maybe part of even the charm. Anyway, so keep going with the other two. So then between the reckoning and the figure in the carpet, I feel like the figure in the carpet, even though I, I... personally enjoyed it and i think that it's uh, a great read i think that if you do not have a literary background a lot of the the 
thematic purpose is going to be lost on you and you're just not going to appreciate it as much. Whereas with the reckoning, even if you don't have a literary background, it still has, I think, both of those stories, Mrs. Mancy's view view and uh, the reckoning itself. I think yeah. that both of those stories are beautifully written, right? I think that yeah, stylistically yeah. Wharton is actually better than James. Um, and, and she's just a master of setting, but also as far as like plot and, and the narrative thread that's going through Mrs. Mancy's view, like has a little twist there at the end. And the reckoning also, I think is just a great, like kind of psychological view into a woman of that time period who kind of is like, Oh, well shit. I, you know, I guess I have to stick it, with what I said I was going to do, but this sucks. The reckoning would make for a fascinating reread. <sighs> Yeah, it's an interesting one because for its topic, if I were to say it out loud, how about this as a mind experiment or a thought experiment? Yeah. If I were to tell someone out loud what the premise of it was, wouldn't you have actually expected it to be more intense or dramatic? Because the premise is is pretty strong. It's like we're challenging all marriage conventions or we have an open marriage or I forgot what the something like that, right? Yeah. Am I misremembering? Yeah, the very I first line of it is the marriage law of the new dispensation will be thou shalt not be unfaithful to thyself. So it's it's right. rewriting what it means for a marriage and, and that marriage is not does not have to be permanent, right? It's it's once you stop loving each other or once you stop having use for each other, then you move on. Yeah, I wonder you picked a quote that had the word dispensation in it. So I'm already like, who would read that? Who's going to read it? You know, after that opening, who's going to stick with this? You know, it's got a vow <laughs> in it. Uh, no, I thought, yeah, it does have a, I think the, the premise was so clear up front. I guess I just wonder where was the, it takes so many pages, I guess, or it takes long, so long for them to have like they're falling out or, if, you know, it just, I wonder if the situation would match the kind of writing a person today would expect. And the answer might just be an obvious no. And that's like, that's on them to, you know, kind of, I don't know, not stick it out, but like kind of buck up and, and read something more challenging, maybe something a bit more dense or literary. Mm-hmm. But I do think there's a, there's a certain disconnect between the, the brief summary for that story and then the actual reading of the story. Well, and I, I don't think Socrates would have that as much, but maybe it's a false comparison. Yeah, with, well, yeah, because this is also fiction, but like, I think that yeah, with right. both... With both of Wharton's stories that were um, in the collection, they both are about like the psychology of a woman, right? And, yeah, and right. women who were married and what it's like for them when their status changes. So in that way, right, it's right. kind of like Gilman in that Gilman explores um, like women's minds and the psychology of a woman. I think that Wharton is doing the same thing. Um, and also I think in my, my personal view, I think that she, she writes just as beautifully in a lot of ways. Yeah. And certainly a more dense way, but that can be to or for or against its credit. Yeah. Um, let's see. I don't want to create any, I don't want to railroad you into anything of these three. Where are your feelings where they were when you proposed them? Like you think the reckoning and the other one and the figure in the carpet should get in? I think I still think that the reckoning should get in, but I think that based on the idea of uh, readability and enjoyment for others, Socrates' defense would probably uh, be a better choice over the figure in the carpet. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, that's kind of where my head is. Here's where then, because I don't want this to feel like we have to do, it's odd though, right? Because debate becomes so difficult to, it becomes difficult to actually change your mind. What I don't want is to make it feel like, well, because I got more than you, you just get to pick one or whatever at the end. I want us to be thorough, um, though I don't mind the way we've been breaking them down. I suppose I have one final question or point of comparison then before we maybe lock in the list. The, I I would almost rather throw the figure in the carpet in over the um, reckoning because of because it is an oddity, mm-hmm. because of its strangeness. I don't know. Is there any merit to that? I think I think you nailed the reckoning. It, it is. It makes for a time and place. Let me back up and rephrase this. If I had to recommend it to someone and give them a framing, it would be like you said. It's the lives of women at this very particular time in a society that had these expectations. If you read it with the context of that, here you know you'll run away with it. It'll be it'll be a great read. I just wonder if I would need to give any context for the other one. I would just maybe almost want it to be stand up on its own as like just an oddball construction and just a kind of a strange tale. Do you feel like one of those is better or worse for that reason? Do you do you feel like you could recommend the reckoning cold or, or the figure in the carpet cold? Does that matter to you? Uh, I think that I could recommend the reckoning to anybody, um, yeah, uh, and and not necessarily have to give like um, a synopsis of it. But with the figure sure, in the sure. carpet, especially because um, you know after talking to you about it and you uh, were talking about how you didn't understand that it was. Uh, meant to be like more playful until like halfway through the story. Yeah, there was some moment that I can't remember now. I'd have to go do, do some digging. But yeah, there was definitely a moment, not in the early goings, where I realized that they were they were really attacking this narrator more than I had understood. Yeah, I would, in that case, like knowing that, um, I would have to then, it, whenever I do recommend this short story, I'm going to have to tell people like, by the way, like the the beginning, you need to pick up on some of the subtleties about um, the yeah. trustworthiness of the narrator. And that's all I would say, but yeah. I would still have to make that point. Whereas with The Reckoning, I feel like you you don't need any kind of necessarily context in order to understand the purpose of the writing. Fair. Yeah, I could see that too. Okay. Okay, how do you feel about then... And I, I think my feelings play out pretty neutrally. I think I could put the reckoning in for its craft and that short story that I did really love, the one with the garden, the yeah, view. The man's, Mrs. Mantis. Um, I think I'd, that making it in alone, would, I would think, sure, that's if we had to pick a short story from this entire collection where I thought this is what I believe a short story should be, it would be something like that. That would That would be up in the conversation, I think. It's just so well-contained and so specific, which is the enjoyment for me. I would, yeah, I'd be comfortable putting that in. I was trying to build a case in my head for the figure in the carpet in these last couple of minutes, just because of how strange it becomes. But I don't know the, the an author or creator commenting on their own creation and maybe putting themselves in it, maybe not. I just don't think that's as novel because it's been done in other mediums at this point yeah. too. It, it it was a good version of one of those, I guess. It's so if I had to take the craft over the novelty, I think there's more craft than there is novelty, I suppose. Yeah. I just thought it would be nice to have an oddity in. Yeah. I don't know. How do you feel about then putting in Socrates' defense in the reckoning as the final two? Do you feel like, because again, I don't know if you're doing this thinking of it like a math equation, but that would mean 
uh, like I got more than you did. I don't know if that bothers you. Feel free to, you know, hash it You're out or whatever. You're the worst person. Any... No, I don't care. <laughs> it's true. I mean, we've been going at it for over an hour. I, you, you could say that and I would understand. <laughs> no, I'm totally cool with uh, Socrates' defense going in there based on the idea of like, this is not a, a list for Amanda, but a list for readers. <laughs> And then how about, yeah, I think, yeah, because that is a trend that I noticed. So I don't know if you would agree with it. I know we've already spoke on that. How about this final mental exercise before we commit to the five then? Imagine that you were you had to give the assembly of five that we chose to a person as like a, as like a package deal. What do you think about the five that we've hypothetically assembled then? Because if, if you think of it in that mind experiment way, it kind of changes the way the picks would settle. But weirdly, I think our five ended up being, I don't know if we did this intentionally, but it's weirdly diverse and I would feel pretty good about it. Yeah. I don't know if you feel that way. I do actually. We've got like some comedy in here. We've got nonfiction, we've got poetry, and then we've got two like psychological uh, thrillers essentially. So, and there's a decent blend of, uh, I think the reckoning then would be the, the kind of like literary deep dive pick of yeah. the bunch or not even that those are particularly deep dives. Edith Wharton is a pretty like tight Titanic type figure. So yeah. it's not even like we're going that deep, but I think for, again, an average of just like I read two books, a year, you know, five books a year or what, you know, just like a casual reader, mm-hmm. I think as a recommendation that strikes me as a pretty decent, deeper cut. Yeah. And then, yeah, I mean, you got Plato, which is just one of the all-time like Western civilization names that will just probably never go away ever. Mm-hmm. It's a person associated with just creating the way we think, basically. And so, I, you know, we got po- we snuck poetry in there too, <laughs> yeah. which was nice. <laughs> and yeah, any final before we lock in the five in no particular order? I think we will stick to the personalized order yeah. at the end. Um, are there any final thoughts or again, any, are there any final pleas you want to make for anything to switch out or in? I, at this point, I'd still, I think the whole time I've been open, but I'm still open to any potential swaps. No, I'm good. I think that it's a pretty comprehensive list so far. And in that final, I think the thing that's making me most content with the five is that final calculus of as a package deal to represent just Mm -hmm. here's some good writing. It's really pretty diverse. Yeah. And we, and I, I'm glad we have the downer in there. Like, I think that I really think that's a necessary addition. I, that's why I ranked it so highly when I looked back on it is just, I just thought this is such a really just, again, coherent, brutal thing that I think is a D de- it, it's with reading. It should be balanced as in many things in life. And I think that was, it provides such a good balance that book. Yeah. So the final five then, and again, feel free to jump in with any changes or swaps or thoughts, but for now, the final five we have are The Yellow Wallpaper by Perkins Gilman, Lord Arthur Seville's Crime by Oscar Wilde, Anthem for Doomed Youth by the dude's name I just forgot again, Wilfred Owen, (laughs) Uh, The Reckoning by Edith Wharton, and Socrates' Defense by Plato. Thoughts on that final list of five for the best ofs? Nope, sounds good to me. What we will do now is, well, granted, I'm actually not going to edit this out, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to say we're about to take a break. We are, but the listener is not. What we're about to present then is our personal rankings of these in order, and just this is our way to at the end of the best of or the top five, just to give a little personal sign off and touch. We can give any final thoughts or quick recommendations on the five, and so Amanda and I will present the five of these in our personal order, like what I think is the best one and what you should read first. And then, you know, through five, Amanda will do that as well. And so Amanda, why don't you start us off with the five in order? So 
from the five that we have, I my number one would be yellow wallpaper, obviously. Uh, my mm-hmm. number two would be The Reckoning. My number three would be Lord Arthur Seville's Crime. My number four is Owen's Poetry. And uh, my number five would be Socrates' Defense. Fair enough. Yeah, I think mine... I think I would swap one of mine up, so or one of yours up, actually, now that I think of it. Um, so my number one, Yellow Wallpaper as well. Fantastic short stories, great voice, and good commentary, too. You could read that in the feminist way, and it would be a really intriguing study. So that's number one. Two is the poetry. I still think the consistency there is impressive. Almost not a bad poem in the bunch, and also brief, to its credit. I think three, I'll put in the crime, though. Lord Arthur Seville's crime. You gotta love Oscar Wilde. Mm -hmm. Good comedy, good humor, very readable, compared to some other things on here, more literary. Four for me would be Socrates' defense, which we covered well, and then I think five would be The Reckoning. Um, Because The Reckoning was one of the only ones that I didn't include. What can I say nicely about it, or a kind word on it? really intriguing and well-written stuff. And I think that the, again, the view story, the the one about the garden just is a complete cohesive thing. And it's clicking on all the short story levels that I'd like. And so that I, I wholeheartedly recommend. And I think in general, her writing would be an easy recommendation that folks after an hour and a half of not so brutal and bitter debate, <laughs> mostly pretty fun is our top five list from this segment of the Penguin Classics, Little Black Classics podcast, episodes 41 through 60. Those are the five best works, the ones that you should. I think I would happily call them all must-reads. Would you agree? Or For how sure. do you feel about that? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. If not the stories of the authors, I think we, I feel quite comfortable saying that. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, though, we are going to segue and transition into the back half of this pod, the drudgery half, the brutal... <laughs> I feel like I've said the word brutal a lot tonight. Thanks for the World War One poetry. But this, it's about to get truly... Uh, <laughs> truly brutal in here i'm trying to think it's going to be carnage filled i don't know let's not be too harsh yeah Yeah, geez who knows (laughs) it's late and i've had a couple beers so who knows what other words will come out but we're gonna we're gonna transition to that part of the podcast you the listener will hear a brief musical interlude right now i'll put something in just to make it clear that we're transitioning to the bottom five instead of the top five again hope you go and find those reads sometime soon and if you're going to join us for the bottom five i think we're going to be a little bit more expedient here in picking these out and kind of critiquing them so hope you enjoy that if you're signing off here and you just wanted the good recommendations so flattered you listen through the whole thing hope you pick up something interesting to read and here we go now a transition to the bottom five Okay, if you're still with us, then you are really in it for the long haul, and you like to hear us complain as much as we enjoy <laughs> celebrating. I think I kind of enjoy the uh, the critique and complaining aspect of this as much as the celebration. For sure, we're going to do the bottom five. I think Amanda and I agreed off air that we're not going to do we're not going to do it in quite as thorough a way, um, just because we really do feel like we want to give people recommendations on how to enjoy reading and maybe not things to avoid. This is more of a a dunking, uh, a dunking on, I believe would be the expression. Mm-hmm. And so we'll go, we'll do our back and forth. I don't know if we'll end up picking the actual bottom five. I'm not sure if there's a point in that exercise. <laughs> I don't know what that, I guess it would reveal things we really dislike. It's value in that, <laughs> yeah. but let's go, but we'll do our back and forth, Amanda, just like before. Um, I'm comfortable with that. Yeah. Feel free to throw your first one out there and then expand on it as you see fit. What is uh, one of
one of the ones that belongs in the bottom five. So uh, the one that I chose that I thought was um, the worst, I guess, among the collection, although it still Mm -hmm. has its merits, um, is actually the Tolstoy piece, How Much Land Does a Man Need? Um, Yeah, it's my number one. (laughs) I'm glad we agree. Um, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so... Tolstoy does have, um, you know, a clarity of idea in in his stuff, but it's very much. I would rather read his philosophy and his nonfiction than these short stories. I'll just say it that way. Um, yeah, it's it's very. We had talked about it in the, in the episode. It's almost like um, fairy tale ish, minus the actual like you know interesting bits of a fairy tale. And mm-hmm. <laughs> it's and just like what the issue was for me with Antigone, it was moralistic to the point of just like I mean I'm like I got it, I get it. It's not. Right. I don't, I don't need to hear it a million times. Uh, of course. So yeah. that, that was, those were my issues with Tolstoy there, but uh, th- he does have some um, interesting, I think, um, turns of phrase, but it is not enough to save his, his writing. <laughs> For this one, I wrote down an unofficial list of things that we dislike. And I, and we've talked about it in the front half too, about things we like, cause it's kind of the antitheses of this. We don't like when things moralize in a blunt force way. Yeah. We don't like when the theme is simplistic or it teaches you a lesson directly. Right. We don't like when it's repetitive with no reason. I mean, that can be a part of style, but more repetitive in its ideas than the style. Right. When there's a lack of cohesion or when it rambles. Mm-hmm. And then this last one's a bit wordy, but I, I couldn't think of a better way to phrase it in short notice. But when it doesn't pace well, or at least it doesn't find a snappiness or pep, I think that's what, again, when the yellow wallpaper we enjoyed most is that it has a strong flow in terms of being quick about it, right. as it were. And I, I, I don't think Wharton is, for example, but we, and I liked hers. We, we covered that well enough in the front half. So it's like, it doesn't have to be that, but I think that's what we like. We right. tend to like. This book has, commits all of those errors, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it does. Doesn't, don't these short stories <laughs> not do any of those things? Yeah. Or they do, sorry, those were critiques. They do all of those things, or it does all of those things. The best compliment I could give this would be backhanded, which is the foreshadowing is so effective. I could give that story to a middle schooler, maybe even a fifth grader, and have them analyze foreshadowing, and they would not be, they could not get it wrong. They could not misunderstand the foreshadowing in the story where that guy dies. Yep. Because yep. it's about him dying, and then he dies. There's, there's no. That's it. There you go. I yeah. I don't think I could compliment this without being critical at the same time. It would all be backhanded. Yeah. I you know the best thing I suppose I would say quickly is if it was if this was some revelation because he wrote about peasants instead of rich people. Way to go! But it's been done so infinitely better since then that yeah. there's just no reason to visit this. Don't go watch Parasite from last year. What a film. Also deals with class critique. You can find a million class critiques, a billion of them, and th- they would be so much more thorough, enjoyable, and have a point of view stronger than this. Yeah. I agree. It was my yeah. number one. Including Oscar Wilde, who does a lot of class critiques. Just saying. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Tolstoy, take a back seat for now. Sorry, bud. I'm not even going to... I did pull quotes. I, I took a lot of time, actually, to go back. Like I said, at the very outset of this episode, it took me way longer to decide out of my bottoms, and I re- went back and pulled quotes, but at this point, I'm not even going to pull quotes for that. <laughs> Goodbye and good night, Tolstoy. <laughs> Goodbye. 
I'll throw out one of mine then, yep. since you went first, I suppose. Uh, my number two, I don't know if you remember this one, A Simple Heart. Uh, yes, that was also on my list, and it's also my second worst. <laughs> Fantastic. Wow. Okay. Okay. This one I felt very strongly about. Like I said, my my one and two felt pretty locked in. The, the, to- the other three will be a little shakier. It's plotting in the way, I guess Wharton is a good contrast here because I think you could hand these both to me and say, these are literary, right? And I would say, yeah, but one of them sucks to read and is like not interesting (laughs) in any way, but they are. I think this is the kind of literature that when my friends or not my personal friends, I, I wouldn't say I have friends who think this way, but if friends of yours think reading is not a thing I can enjoy. It is a thing I did in school and it's over now. I graduated from reading. This would book would be maybe an example of why. Like if you gave this to someone as a gift, it would be an awful, bland, <laughs> uninteresting gift. It really felt flavorless to me. There was an absurd premise in there too, like with the bird, yeah. but then it lasts for a couple pages and has like one humorous anecdote that isn't even written in a humorous way. Yeah, just bland across all of it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, Felicity doesn't strike me as a character of really any depth or interest, and the whole thing was dedicated to developing her depth. I suppose if the point, and I think we covered this in the review, but if the point was quietness, then it was written too quietly, mm-hmm. and it just it's it sank to silence to me. If it was meant to be quiet, it ended up being silent. I thought this was really quite a dull read. I agree. And this one also, according to some of the reviews I've read about it um, and some of the literary analyses about it, it was meant to be a commentary, just like Tolstoy, on um, the the class distinctions and how the, the lower classes are, you know, like really terribly treated and yeah Felicity is, but also the point that you made in um, the episode was that just because like her life um, is like boring and stuff like that doesn't mean that I have to be bored in order to get that. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And I am bored. I'm bored rereading the quotes that are in front of me now that I pulled. (laughs) There were a couple of like images that Flaubert uh, created that I thought were nice. Um, But and, and one of the, the big things that I, I remember from the episode that we both agreed on was that it just, there were so many like little hooks and points that could have been really interesting if he had really gone into detail, but it was like, he was so generalized and just like almost listing yeah. the events of her life that it was just too much summary. Yeah. It was just not too much not summary. Interesting. I'm even looking at a quote. I'm going to read two quick ones here, two quick sentences. This is about the parrot. Some people said the parrot looked more like a turkey or called him a blockhead. Felicity found their jibes very hurtful. There was a curious stubborn streak in Lulu, which never ceased to amaze Felicity. He would refuse to talk the minute anyone looked at him, which has an exclamation point on it for some reason. That sentence needs a fucking exclamation point. Why? <laughs> it's the bland summary of his personality. And it's just it's just a series of generic statements about his behavior without showing any of it. It just, man, yeah, it's all tell, no show. I think if, if Flaubert is to be understood as a literary... Uh, kind of another titan, which he generally is. Yeah. It must be structural, it must be thematic, or it must be lost in translation from the French, right? I, I don't know. That's yeah, entirely possible. Yeah. And I do remember from that text a lot of exclamation points. Perhaps he did that because he knew his story was so boring. <laughs> so he's trying to liven yep. it up with the exclamation points. <laughs> yeah, just absolutely <laughs> unenjoyable. Sorry, Flaubert, you go down fighting, but... Did not like your contribution to the Penguin Little Black Classics. Amanda, how about a pick from you for the bottom five? Okay. Well, what if we get all of these in order? How fascinating would that be? <laughs> yeah, I, know, right? 
I don't th- I don't think so. My final two, I don't think we will, but we'll see. Go ahead. I'm pretty sure, yeah. There's a couple here that okay. I'm not sure about for yeah. you. Um, but the one, so Tolstoy and was the worst, Flaubert was the second worst. And then for me, the next one was actually Sinbad the Sailor. Oh, okay. No, I didn't put that one in. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. All right. Talk on it. So the reason I I, I and I think that anyone who has listened to me uh, discussing what we've read so far, my I enjoy plot, I enjoy narrative threads, um, but for me, the real enjoyment comes from um, the the language that and the style that an mm-hmm. author uses. And Sinbad the Sailor had nothing <laughs> with regard to that. It had yeah, all plot, yeah. no style. Um, and so that's why it made the list for me. It's like, yeah, it's a fast read and like there are uh, things that happens to him, but just like with Flaubert, it's like a list of things that happens to him without any kind of uh, development, whether it's stylistic or even just like more in-depth discussion of what happens to him. It's just a list of like, okay, this thing, this shitty thing happened to him and this shitty thing happened to him. And it's like on and on, but it's just, I think that it could have been better written and more interesting if it had taken the time to uh, go more in depth with some of the stories. I couldn't tell you one single stylistic choice that was made that like struck me or that I remembered or that I felt like I could write something interesting about. I feel like so much of how I process reading is through the lens of writing, Mm -hmm. which is just because I guess from schooling, right? My brain's broken from schooling. (laughs) But when I'm reading something I love, I do in the back of my head just think, what could I write about this? What would this inspire me to think or say? Or what would my analysis be and yada yada making up prompts or you know i have the teacher brain going and so yeah i don't know what i would say about this i I can say this in the time between when this was written to now we have invented millions more cool adventure stories that are just more fun and breezy even humorous i don't even know if there was humor in this really that much no and so (laughs) yeah i I think we're not going to do the back and forth debate thing in this half because we we've gone on long and we just want to just say, say some critiques at the end. So I'm just going to only be in agreement with you here and say, yeah, if you want adventure, this you can find so much better elsewhere. Yep. Like why turn here? Why go here? You know, King Kong, they made into a movie, even though King Kong kind of appears in these. Just go watch a King Kong movie. Right. Why? It's, it's an important question that is unanswered here. <laughs> why read this? I don't know. I don't know. I can't give you an answer. Uh, I'll throw one out there then. I'm just going to keep going in order. Is that cool? Yeah. Does that make sense? Because again, we, I think we agreed we're not going to actually try and hash these out for brevity's sake. So let's just go in order and see what our thoughts are. Yeah. My third pick is The Nose. That was my pick after Sinbad the Sailor. Okay, cool. All right. We can we can just ramp on this or vamp on this. <laughs> I, here's what I'll say about The Nose. I wrote this down because I think it has kind of an ignominious spot on this list of bad ones. I think it had the most wasted potential. That is why I wanted to put mm-hmm. it on. I actually don't think the act of reading it was that bad. And I think I could have picked other things I disliked more in terms of just, again, page to page feeling and reaction. But what an idea and just squandered it. Like yeah. there's a half scene with the nose in it and it, it ha- even that was kind of cool, but then it just ends and the story has such a bland resolution and it, the satire felt really laughless to me. Mm-hmm. It didn't feel like it went for any laughs. It was just kind of presented itself as absurdity with no thought other than, Hey, this is absurd. Right. right. And so, and I guess may have been the kind of the point of that literary time and movement anyway. And so, yeah, feel free to chalk it up to like, I don't have the cultural context or literary context. That's fine. I, I, 
again, would just feel safe not recommending this to people. If you if you are not Russian, I am not Russian, and if you natively speak English, I natively speak English. I just don't see why this would be a satire you have to read. I think a lot of that stuff just gets lost. Yeah, I one hundred percent agree. the The thing with the nose was that I mean, I had to have. Thankfully, my copy had footnotes so that I could understand some of the satirical mentions. And mine did not. Yeah, yours did not. And even with those footnotes, I was just like, man, like if you didn't have these, it's like you really have to have been there at that time and really know what was going on in Russia during that time to really understand like how this is funny. And with the second story, because there was a second story to it as well, which is, it was just- I don't even remember. (laughs) Was it the was the old the was it the official who dies in the carriage yeah. or doesn't die? He doesn't Does die. He die. He's just like found like hiding in the carriage. Oh, because he's afraid of somebody who arrived, yeah. a general. Because he he forgot yeah, he got yeah. totally wasted and he forgot that the military mm, people were mm-hmm. coming to check out the carriage that he was hiding yes. in. Yes, um, yes, I do remember this now. Yeah. So see that story too was like absurd in a lot of ways, but again. I think that the satire was more obvious there and, and more cross cultural in a way, but it just also was just kind of meh, eh, whatever. There were some, I think the second story was um, in some ways more interesting as far as like the language and the style, but it was just not in general. Grogul was not uh, my cup of tea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I completely agree. A real miss. And for satire, yeah, go to our, uh, Oscar Wilde, who we chose in the front half, and yeah. I think deserves that spot extremely uh, more so than Gogol. 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 Well, you know, let's not. <laughs> I'm not going to reintroduce my mispronunciations of things now. <laughs> uh, we're going to go with yours. Yours sounded very, very official. Smooth. smooth. It had a smoothness to it. Thanks. Uh, I believe I have two left. You must have one then. Yep. Or do you have two? I have no. I have one left because I, I, we've agreed oh, with everything except for Sinbad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Let's see if we can go four for five here. If I had to, well, no, I don't want to give away mine, but I I have a prediction what the fifth one could be if we do agree. Go ahead. Um, So the one that I chose, I don't think it's going to be one that you chose. It's um, Pepys, The Great Fire of London. Oh, okay. That was the one that Lord Seville's crime bumped off of my top five. Uh, That would have been, and I, I, I expected that would have happened. I thought that would have been the most fun, I don't know, contentious one we could have had. The, the most contentious split. Go ahead and speak on the Pepys. I'll also, again, only chime in here with negative thoughts. I'm not trying to, we're not trying to stir anything up really, yeah. but go ahead. So uh, generally speaking, I don't really care for uh, nonfiction, but um, this was a diary. So I, of course, was uh, more mindful of that. But again, just like with Sinbad the Sailor, like I just, I really do hunger for uh, literary analysis for me, for, for language and style. And here, the front half of it where he's talking about um, the plague, right, and the war, he's not even, like, really talking about those things. Like, he mentions it a couple of times, but it's just, I feel like the first half before he starts discussing the fire of London, it was just a drag for me where, and I know for you, you liked it because it was, like, insights into um, England at the yeah, time yeah. a lot of the time, but it's just, uh, it was 
what I wanted to read about uh, was the plague and was um, the war and how it affected his life, right? But it seemed like it didn't affect his life at all <laughs> in a lot of ways. And it's just, it fell really flat for me and, and I didn't get any emotion from him until the fire of London. So the second half where he's talking about the fire of London and where we get some of his descriptions and, and his feelings for his neighbors and, and stuff like that, like that I found way more interesting. So if, if penguin had like, you know, only included that part, it would not be on yeah. my worst, my bottom five list. Here's a criticism. I'll, Cause again, we're, I'm only riding the agreement wave here yeah. and I, and I did bump it for my top five. So I have no entitlement to put up a case this reading this is a great reminder why many thoughtful people in their adult lives begin to write diaries and then they abruptly quit. Yeah. They do it for like a week and then they're like, no, I can't do this anymore. This is a great reminder why. It's because life is mundane. It, it just is. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Like, you know, you can you can jazz it up and spice it up all you'd like, but if you take stock on a day-by-day basis of the things occurring in your life. That is what it is. And so this is a good reminder to read and think like, holy shit, I, this is just uninteresting to uh, the account. Day, you know, I have to read different accounts of I wrote a letter to this person and then I counted some money and I went to my job for a few hours. And it's all of that just wrapped up into a into a diary. Mm-hmm. It only really gets exciting in the exceptional moments. And most of it is not exceptional moments. I guess about half, like you said. Yeah. So a great reminder of why the form is perhaps not the mental boon you think it to be. I feel like that's part of, I see diary, daily diary entry thrown around as kind of a mindfulness exercise these days. I feel like that's kind of a, I don't know if it's trendy, I'd say, but it's something that you see thrown about as something you can do to build mindfulness in your life. But I say avoid that. Do something more specific. I had a friend recently tell me they keep a, like a gratitude journal every day. Hmm. Do something like that. Something actually specific that maybe requires not creativity, but it's targeted yeah. and maybe more guided. Um, this is a, yeah, this is just a great reminder that if you're just doing the plot of your own life, people, you might just be wildly disappointed. <laughs> yep. That's why you should start a podcast. Mm. There you go. Another <laughs> yeah. reason to throw that out. Throw that into the podcast abyss, you know, <laughs> throw, throw in your lot. Okay. Uh, let's keep this moving. I have two left then, which you did apparently not choose. And so we went three for five though, better than our other end. I feel like I know what your other two are, but. Oh, really? Oh, prediction's fun then. Go ahead and predict Predict one of them and then I'll do one. I think the meek one. Okay. And what's actually predict them both. And predict the other one I figure would be the life of a stupid man. Okay. So number four is the life of a stupid man. Yes. A hundred percent. You nailed that one. So let's talk about that one first. Here's what I know for sure. This is, and this is, has a great touch point with the, in the first half, the poem, the anthem Doom Poetry, mm-hmm. the anthem for doomed youth. Extremely cohesive sounding narrator voice here. And this is nonfiction for the most part. And by the way, when I say talk about this collection, I'm ignoring the short story, which I liked fine and made a, a phenomenal movie. So right. there you go. Rashomon, go watch it. But I'm just talking about the, the diary stuff he did, the short entries, the brief stuff. If your voice is going to be that strong, but you're also going to going to be that bleak and uninteresting and, and just sort of leave so many things dangling, then I don't want to spend my time with your voice and your writing, right? Like part of picking nonfiction that you enjoy is picking a, a narrative voice that you can cling on to. And that's where, to me, this just became 
such a dour read, at least with the poetry, you have that veneer of literary devices. You have that, that shield of thinking this person's trying to create maybe art in some, in some clearer way. Mm -hmm. And I think you could, of course you could argue this is modernist writing. It's art in its way, but yeah, I mean, the other thing I wanted to say here that it feels like I don't want to depression shame the man, but the, the insights on depression here, none of it felt insightful to me. It just felt like really basic and not even that specific observations about a disinterest in life. It didn't feel, I didn't feel like I, I walked away knowing why people would have a cloud of depression over themselves any more than I would have of just reading a summary of what depression is and here's what the symptoms are or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I just think, I guess the final thing I'll say as a critique to it, I kind of like a lot of modernist literature, but the, the non sequitur nature of how this was put together is the final thing that kind of just broke it for me. It purposely doesn't have a lot of cohesion other than chronological cohesion. Right. And so some of the scenes actually kind of worked. We touched on that yeah. though in the pod and we had some imagery that certainly sparked some, some creativity and some joy. But I just think as far as um, a recommendation to a person goes, I don't know what they would get out of this. In Anthem, I had such a clear idea of what they would get. Mm-hmm. And again, uh, not again, but World War One is far enough away where I think that kind of tone or attitude can be absorbed in a more abstract way. This is just like a depressed person who seems shitty to his family and like it's boring to read about his sadness i guess and so anyway that's a a long-winded way of saying i did not like this yeah thoughts on this one amanda Um, so i would like to say that the the bamboo grove the short story was interesting Mm -hmm. and then uh the yeah yeah it's it's three collections the third collection which was the life of a stupid man um i thought that Mm -hmm. that was way more interesting than the second one which i think was called like death note or something like that Um, Yeah, about his mom or something where it was just like a a few pages of chronicling his youth like and it was there was no descriptions i mean there were a couple of descriptions but it was just like a like reading a diary entry that's been like kind of consolidated and just it was not it was not uh what i was expecting and just kind of boring to read the life of a stupid man like yeah, it was autobiographical, but in that part, he actually tried to uh, infuse some more style, and he was a um, uh, he was into um, structuralism in, in, as part of the the modern movement, and you could tell that he yeah. was well read. But um, again, it just kind of fell flat for me too because I was just like, yeah, stylistically, it's really interesting, but narratively, it was just meh. <laughs> it has that stink of modernist randomness that you can easily, if you want to apply academia stuff to it, can easily come across as very thoughtful, deliberate, intellectual, complex, but that at just a reading level, this is a structureless collection of anecdotes that are just not enjoyable to read. Yep. And so that's anyway, that's my like, that would be my harshest critique critique would be. Under the guise of modernism, you think this is an intellectual work, but by abandoning any structure other than just here's some stuff I think about in order that I thought about it, figure it out kind of a vibe. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I I tolerate that with some authors, and I suppose I just don't for others. I'd have to do a deeper mental dive as to why that would be. But yeah, it just struck me as that that kind of modernism I've always hated. I I would say in, in my literary proclivities, I veer towards a bit more of the text-based kind of traditional stuff, I, I suppose. But um, I, I like playfulness and experimentation. This, to me, just broke me on that. Yeah. I, it's the kind that I don't like. It it feels like 
the kind of deep quote unquote that a high schooler would come across where they're, they just, you know, it's like a mixtape of songs that are disjointed and they're like, no, this is my, this is me, man. This is deep. And it's just like, this is incoherent. Like, I don't know what, what do you want me to make of this? Yeah. It's, humans are complex. Okay. Like, yeah, it's what an insight. Um, what a, what a mess we are anyway. So yeah, I didn't like that one. Um, though again, on a page to page level, quite readable and like had some stuff in it too that I right. images. So the final one I picked then, you, it was not the meek one. Which one was the meek one? Uh, the meek one was um, not Dostoevsky, but another, I believe, Russian writer. Oh, the narrator who did he, did he murder her in the end? Or did uh, she well, die she, in the end? Yeah, the the iconic. Uh, the iconography, the the Christianity, yeah. where she she doesn't he's he doesn't murder her, but he perhaps drives her in a way right. to do so. It's but, his, yeah. yeah, it's his own. He's the shopkeeper. Yeah. Yes, that one was in contention for bottom five, but that was one when I went back and reread, it grew in admiration for me. Yeah. I because of its narrative voice, I was like, man, this is a distinct. It has that Russian intensity that Dostoevsky does, and he does it in other books too. Where it's just this narrator is so well realized psychologically. Mm-hmm. It's a great psychological work. That was, I think, what turned me back again. I was like, okay, this is actually. I, I probably gave it a two, I think, at the moment as well. I don't remember, though. I don't. It, but it, it's a dense read and not very enjoyable, quote unquote, but psychologically fascinating. No, the number five for me is The Atheist's Mass. Wow. Do you remember doing that one? The Balzac. Yes. It was another disappointment that I think if the nose it, for me was the conceptual disappointment mm-hmm. where the concept should have been so amazing and it was flat, this is the reputation disappointment, maybe in Flaubert too. Right. But it's just, it, this is a name you just have to hear if you're studying literature. This is a name that comes up all the time. And so he gets this, you know, spot in the canon. And I just, I don't know. It felt too explicit again, like Flaubert style, too much summary, too much just on the surface, just telling me stuff. I pulled a quote here that again, I won't read, but it's just, it's five or six sentences a row. Just telling me about here's the history of the Catholic church. Here's a concept and here's where it came from. And here's, it's a religious institution idea about marriage or something. And it's, it's just a bunch of terms and summary of things. It's not, there's no narrative propulsion to it. I think some of the characters were actually kind of decent uh, and the character work intri- intriguing. Mm-hmm. I, none of it felt memorable though. I don't, I feel like I came away from it thinking I won't remember this. And that's why I think this made it in instead of the meek one. Like I, I will remember the kind of oddity of that character and the psychological intensity. I, I'm not going to say I'll remember the specifics of what those were, but I'll definitely remember reading that. It's like the atheist mass. When I looked back at the, the, in the list and I was clicking through the documents, rereading things. I honestly was like, I don't even remember reading this at all. I even read the quotes and was rereading our review and outline. And I had almost no recollection. Like I had to go physically crack it open to stir a memory up. And I think that's what damned it in the end. It was just like, this was such a forgettable, whatever read, nothing popped. I don't know. It felt like it didn't even try anything. Yeah. um, I would have to agree because when I was going through my list and, and looking through my notes, I was like, Atheist Mass, man, which one was that one? And it took me yeah. a really yeah. long time to kind of even start to remember what it was about. And I still don't really sure. remember like what the point of that story was. <laughs> it was the, I remember this part because I do the drawings for our Instagram. So this at least stuck with me, but it was the one where the soldier came home and his mother was That's worried right. about him or something. Mm-hmm. There was confusion about if it was him or another guest or mm-hmm. she was anticipating her son. I think he was dead in the end, right? Yes. Or like he didn't come home or he something. Was, but Yeah, he had died. 
Yeah, it was like another soldier came back. They thought it was him, but it wasn't. Yeah. Yeah, I forgettableness. This one gets the forgettableness award, and that's why it deserved a spot in the bottom five, just because. And I tried, I don't know if you tried this too when I was putting the top fives together. I tried not to go recency bias. I can get why it would seem that way, because I think we ended up leaning kind of that way. But I I really tried to avoid it. I reread a lot more than I'd like to admit or care to admit. Um, How about this? The reason it can't be higher up on the list is because I remember distinctly how boring A Simple Heart was. Like, I remember moments of it being boring. Mm -hmm. The Atheist Mass was boring in a forgettable way. Right. It kind of wasn't wasn't offensive enough to be that level, but also that kind of makes it even more bland in a way. Right. Very meh. (laughs) Yeah, very meh. And very, um, yeah, very simple and it's in its boringness at least a simple heart had the had the bravery to be boring in a outstanding way with <laughs> one single character one single tale or whatever right yeah yeah i agree uh we're again not going to belabor this and do the rankings just because time wise we want to get in under two hours and we're going to be close here but this is a very I don't know, it's been a very fun and enjoyable way to do the best ofs. Maybe we'll revisit this format for the final 20 in the bottom fives though amanda were there any final I don't know. Did you want to throw out your official bottom five? Were there any that you disagreed with strongly or that you'd cut or swap or anything? Any, any final thoughts on the bottom five? No, I'm good. Okay. Fair enough. I would, I'll say one thing then, cause I did have one parting shot or final thought. I thought Sinbad, I don't know. Some of the goofiness, of those tales will stick with me. Like, I think I'll remember the big egg or, you know, just like simple things. Like I, I, I would stand by that. The Sinbad stuff. I feel like if we were, if we did do the rundown debate of these, mm-hmm. that would be one I'd stand up for. Probably none of the others. I think we'd easily get to a five here. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, yeah, hypothetically there wouldn't have been much much to disagree over. I feel like maybe the life of a stupid man, I'd end up bumping out just because of the, when you're writing in those micro burst, like format he wrote in. Yeah. There were some of them that were, I thought pretty, pretty good. Yeah. So I think that one might've gotten bumped, you know, I think so. that there, yeah. With life of the stupid man, I didn't include that one in my list just cause there were some parts of it that I actually did find really interesting and well done. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah I I couldn't help but agree I I put it in for the it got the unpleasantness award just like <laughs> this is so makes me feel so bad yeah. to read just bad about humanity just this is just such an unpleasant person to be around yeah, you know it's yeah. like you get stuck in that corner at a party with that one person yep. and you're just like oh man this is I'm stuck with you great yeah I can't <laughs> wait to hear about how clogged up your gutters are and how you took you three hours to clear them this weekend or whatever um, <laughs> not that that's happened to me. Or that I've been that guy. (laughs) That will, I think, conclude then our bottom five from the Penguin Little Black Classics collection. That is from editions or inclusions 41 to 60. And I think that is going to wrap up the entire episode. Again, a best ofs or highlights episode. Though I don't know, should I in the title include the phrase lowlights? Maybe I will. What do you think? Yeah, do it. I I yeah I normally say only highlights but um, given the last like twenty or thirty minutes that we put in maybe people will be intrigued by the the real scraping the, of the barrel scraping the trash yeah sometimes there's insight in things that you dislike as much as you like Amanda you, this is your first chunk that you finished with the pod any final parting thoughts from what we've encountered so far just in general brevity of it the trends any I don't know any broad sweeping things you want to say. Uh, I just, I guess uh, a lot of it is, it was easy to choose top three and bottom three, 
the others were yeah. a little bit harder. And I would say that most right. of them for us have been very middle of the road as far as what we have been reading. So it seems like the the selections have been very like safe choices for the most part. Yeah, I agree. And I, I actually reflected on this in the pot I did recently solo, the man of the moon one, mm-hmm. the old man of the moon. And so I know you didn't hear that, but I had a similar thought. Just it reflect when I reflect on the rating system, it actually, I don't like the numbers anymore that we're going to keep doing it, but I like the, the basic split of it because it's done what I hoped it would do, which is isolate aggressively the very top and very bottom. Mm-hmm. I kind of wanted it to be where like most things are twos, so to speak. Yeah. You know, it just, it, it, you know, kind of let the cream rise or whatever kind of a vibe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the it's like you said perfectly, the very, very top, easy to identify. I think the very, very bottom kind of the same. And then, yeah, largely the collection has been kind of in that middle ground, which I think as far as literary study goes is, yeah, it's been kind of nice having the collection hit that spot of, it's illuminating to have something you feel mixed about, I think at times. Mm -hmm. So, excellent. Okay. Well, if you've listened through this whole thing, that's you, mom. Thanks, mom, for listening in. (laughs) Maybe some of Amanda's friends or relatives, and maybe any other listeners that toughed out a two-hour episode, because I think this one... This one might near two hours, honestly. Yeah. It's getting, getting closer in the recording. That's, um, again, such a treat to do it, Amanda. Thanks for joining me for such a long-winded but fun episode. I'm glad we got to shake up the format. And honestly, we might revisit something like this. And the final stretch, I'll do some quick social media plugs because I guess I should set up this momentous occasion. We are entering the final 20 book reviews in the Penguin Little Black Classics collection this large year-long effort we've undertaken is coming to a 20-week close that we might start doubling up, Amanda. We'll talk about that after the pod. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we're coming up on the end. Uh, follow our social media accounts. We have one on Instagram that is at the stumped, and that's the name of it. On Facebook, we are at the Brothers Book Club Podcast. You can find our page there, which as of next week will be filled with weekly posts of quotes and things. I finally have a plan for that. And now it is time to execute on the plan, given that it's the last yeah, 20 episodes. Kind of mind-blowing to say, but hopefully you stick with us for that journey. I mentioned this in the old man of the of the moon pod, but I'll mention it again here. We have some heavy hitters in the final 20, some real big names. we got Joseph Conrad's in there. We've got um, Virgil and uh, who's the other big like Greek storyteller? It's Virgil and there's another one. It's like the per- Homer. There you ah, go. There I was like, go. man, who's the, it's like the Alien Odyssey person. Yeah. Homer's in there. Um, I believe, does a Bronte sister make it in there? Oh, I think, yeah, I think that happens. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, definitely things to look forward to in the back 20, as well as some religious texts, which they haven't done a ton of yet, but there's some religious stuff in the back half or in the final 20. So anyway, that's just a short pitch to say, stick with us. It'll be interesting. I think we'll end up where we were here with a lot of really high end stuff and some real garbage to sift through potentially some real unenjoyable reads, which frankly, I think we like to get into. Yeah, we do. <laughs> Again, thanks for, li- yeah, well, I th- yeah, the, the back half almost more fun. Maybe next time we'll have to flip it to just, we spend all the time on the bottom five and then quickly mention things we liked or something. <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll play with the format. We'll have to give it some thought. Um, again, Amanda, thanks for sticking around for the full time and listeners out there. Thanks for watching, listening and promoting, watching the feed, I guess is what I meant. We do not do a, should we do a video form of this? I'm not ready for that. I don't want that. <laughs> I definitely don't want that in my life. I don't want to wear anything more than a t-shirt for this recording. (laughs) Uh, You guys stay in your comfort zone, folks. Hope you're staying safe. And uh, next time we will see you between the classics. 